Hello, and welcome to Unabashed Book Snobbery, the podcast where we gush about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and malign its atrocious adaptation, Game of Thrones. This is where being a book snob is a compliment. My name is Kylie, and here with me is Julia. Happy Got Day, everybody. Yes. Sunday already. We're recording on a Sunday. Uh, Although, I don't know. Let's not shoot too high. Maybe this takes me over a month to edit. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what things are. I know, just every Sunday lately, I've been waking up going, oh my god, it's Sunday already. I know, and the weekend passes so damn quickly. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this for the first time, first of all, bad choice episode, but uh, <laughs> we both write for fandomfollowing.com, where we discuss all sorts of geeky media, including, of course, a lot of Game of Thrones. Um, and then mm-hmm. Joy and I both write on Tumblr blogs as well. I am G.O.T. Gibson Musings, and she is the Cultural Vacuum, where we discuss book snobbery and more Game of Thrones. And Julia just launched a knitting sub-blog. That... It, okay, it's not just knitting, it's all needlework. I don't know the difference. Okay. Um, but <laughs> some of the cross-stitches that you've reblogged are pretty cool. Yeah. She's she's also useful dash activity, so check that out. <laughs> It's a Jane Austen quote, BT dubs. Yeah. Okay. Of course it, of course it is. So today, today, like I said, this is going to be a really bizarre first episode if you're just tuning in. I hope you're not. Uh, this is going to be another inbox madness episode where mm-hmm. we clear out our Tumblr inboxes. And by clear out, I mean make a very small dent because I think mm-hmm. I have over like 4,500 emails or messages, but I have fewer than that, but. A lot. <laughs> we, uh, we're going to be talking about both A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. As mm-hmm. a warning, there are a couple of questions about some WoW sample chapters. So mm-hmm. I'm going to provide an episode breakdown that hopefully, like, calls that out. But, um, if, you know, we start talking about Mercy or Ariane 2, like, just yeah. tune out if you don't want to hear that. There might be triggering stuff, too, because it's still song of ice and fire so yeah um yeah so it's you know trigger warnings for rape abuse ptsd you know rape apology even that i know could be heavy so yeah some just, of the asks just probably warning. yeah um i predict also just to let you guys know we record we th- we are recording this on june 5th so if you sent in any asks even just like later in the day today because this is like morning um then you know, obviously we won't be able to get to it, but it's not that, you know, we're, we're, we file them away. So you're not forgotten. Mm-hmm. We're really just going to dive right in. I actually wanted to start off. I said, feel free to email us too at unabashedbooksnumber at gmail.com. And we received a few emails and I feel like we need to give those priority because I'm so, so, so atrocious at answering email. It's really, mm-hmm. it's, I'm only worse at responding to like direct messages on Tumblr, which I play this little game where I just hide from it. <laughs> I watched the number tick up and up, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's only 24 right now. I don't need to answer anything. It's fine. It's yeah, just how out. That's how I was about my student loans for a very long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds so terrible. We, um, we're both kind of Martells. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the first email we got, and this is actually an ask that I 
believe I'd been sent before too, and Joy, you might have also, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. is from Fanny. And I don't know if that's a pseudonym or not, but she says, what do you think is the thematic significance of Lady's death, especially with what we know about Warging? So many people use it as evidence of Sansa not being a true Stark, uh, which of course is bull, but a pervasive theory. Uh, I've been thinking maybe it's another parallel to Arya and Sansa, one that ties them both to death in the underworld. Keep doing your theme- thing with themes and shit. <laughs> Aw, thank you. Thank you, Fanny. Um, well, George R. R. Martin seems to agree that it means something. Right? There was that one time where somebody asked him, like, oh, I don't think this means that Sansa isn't real Stark. And he was just like, oh, you don't. No, no, no. He, the person asked him, this is actually important. The person asked him, I don't think it makes her any less of a Stark. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, you don't. Yeah. So he was kind of implying that it it's not that she did, or maybe that she was just asking the right question. I don't I mean, know. Because now that, like, you know, I'm I'm writing something that, like, I know what's going to happen and nobody else does, I kind of, like, have a better understanding of how one answers these questions. So, like, it, it makes, like, So Spake Martin's even more confusing than before. Yeah. So- and I'll try, I'll try to find the source to that because I know somewhere on the Citadel they have that mm-hmm. answer. The thing about Martin is that he gives a lot of answers about Sansa without, I think, truly understanding the fandom dialogue surrounding Sansa. Okay. And especially without understanding the vitriol surrounding Sansa. So I think he has a tendency to answer things rather indelicately when it comes to her. Her mismemory about the sword and how she's an unreliable narrator is, like, maybe the best example yeah. I can think of. But this. that was just, that was totally born out of proportion. I mean, like, it was obvious oh, from the context absolutely. of that ask that he wasn't just talking about Sansa. It was just the example no. that the person who asked happened to bring up. But, like, yeah, the fandom discourse. And then there's, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he understands it. So, like, you know, the whole kind of blaming Sansa for Ned's death mm-hmm. narrative, I don't think that's necessarily one he intended. But it's not one that he's doing a great job of, like, quashing. And same thing with, you know, does Lady's death mean she's a goner? Does Lady's death mean that she's going to betray the Starks? Like, that's the dialogue or that surrounds Or like, right? she'll lose her identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because you, you wrote a piece a while back about, like how the show has made you question certain things, right? Her Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah. And just how sometimes sometimes you worry that, like, the narrative will punish her. So I, I wrote an essay, and I'll link the essay, on Sansa's Stockholm Syndrome with Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. And it's Stockholm's in quotes. It's like a literary Stockholm Syndrome. Which That's is pretty meaningless, yeah. But, like, it's a thing that exists in literature, definitely. And it's a thing that exists in dialogue surrounding literature. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the true Stockholm case with the bank robbers, that's, like, totally... Whatever. People don't understand the study. But, uh, yeah, so, so what that was, that was an essay I'd written a while ago, and then I updated it to incorporate some of, like, what we were seeing with Elaine One. And mm-hmm. this was around the same exact time that Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken had just aired. And that was the a first fun time piece for I, all of us. Yeah. And the first piece I actually wrote was a lot different in nature. The first piece I wrote was, like, I'm really scared because, you know what? Maybe this is the direction they're going to go. We oh, did you never publish Sam- that? I'm sorry. <laughs> I never published it because I was told it would cause a sense of panic. So I didn't. Because when you eventually published it. I published components of it. I kept components of it and I toned it down. But basically it was just me saying, 
I'm starting to see signs in this Sansa arc that are making me uncomfortable, and I was having to rationalize way too much about mm-hmm. how desperate she was for Littlefinger's approval in, in that sample chapter and how in line with his plans she were. She was. You know, the conclusion I came to is I don't think the show actually means anything. I don't think Martin's going to be writing some revenge porn, but I could see D&D saying something like, oh, she's raped by Littlefinger in the books. That's the same as being raped by Sansa, you know, or, as uh, being raped by um, Ramsey. Yeah. So, like, I could see them being like, a rape is a rape. Mm-hmm. Well, they've kind of proven that. With, right, just just the mere fact that the thoughts heads could be Jane. Yeah. Um, And, you know, does this tie into the whole lady narrative? Yeah, I really, I do not have any idea what lady means. I don't. I don't think I will until the series is over, if I ever do. Because, obviously, yeah. it's, like, kind of the defining aspect of her arc, in a way. And you could, you could definitely situate it as, like, the beginning of her arc, remember, like, mm-hmm. you know, she starts out incredibly idealistic about courtly behavior. Her, and, you know, that dire wolf dies, who is perfectly well trained and perfectly docile. Yeah. From, from what we could tell, you know, is that, does that just play more into this breakdown of what it truly means to be proper in this world? Like, you know, her conception of what a real knight is certainly changes as the books go on. Well, it's also kind of symbolic of her own like almost victimization because you know she's the one who's doing everything right and she's the one who keeps being punished right right it's it, it's it's sort of kicks off this yeah. like loss of innocence narrative at the same time it kicks off this like pawn narrative too. Exactly. this, this fi- yeah this victimization so yeah i don't know fanny i'm really sorry this is a total non-answer yeah. but like, it's probably very important <laughs> it's very difficult to reconcile because it's so clearly something Thing crucial for her whole arc but we're not seeing her whole arc right now like yeah. it's very this is why we're not great at predictions because we really just analyze what's there and look at the literary merit of it once it's on the page yeah. and she's kind of at a really important crossroads right now i'd say elaine one is really indicative of that for sure so i could see i could see going back and being like oh now it makes perfect sense from this angle but i could also see other angles where it works yeah, and also I, I think that her arc has evolved, like, in the author's mind. I see kind of oh, yeah. evidence of that as he's been writing along. So, I don't know. Just her scripting from Game of Thrones to um to Clash of Kings, even, just like that tonal difference. Yeah. Well, you, she's, you can see. she's, you know, she's growing up a lot. Yeah, but I think she's also, I don't know. I, I don't want any Martin headcanons. I feel like he likes her more than he did originally. If that's uh, so does the reader, I think most of the time. Yeah, she was a little bit like you know annoying in a Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, actually, on that on that vein, um, the next email we got was from Anne, and and she had mm-hmm. definitely said this to me before, so I'm sorry for not answering. Um, but you know, over overwhelmed. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts as to why Sansa has not questioned Littlefinger about Jane Poole at any point? You know, uh, in Game of Thrones, she like hears Cersei. Mm-hmm. say something about, you know, he's going to take care of Jane Poole. You know, is it that she just hasn't figured it out? Does she just not care? Why not? I doubt she doesn't care. I mean, like, I think the last time she thought about Jane Poole explicitly was, like, all the way back in The Clash of Kings, and she was thinking about how she doesn't like to think about it, right? Yeah. But, because like, you, you can't say that, like, you know, oh, it was a hot potato because Jane Poole was, like, in the fucking book. So... Yeah, like, there must be some, it must have been a conscious decision on the author's part to not have her mention it. 
It's definitely not that she's not a compassionate person and that she doesn't no. like care about the the fate of her friend. That's not Sansa at all. That doesn't jive with her characterization. But it is Yeah, it's odd. Mm-hmm. It is. It, maybe like she knows better, <laughs> you know, than to ask Littlefinger. Yeah, because the truth like, is always uh, awful or boring. That's a show line, but you know, maybe that's I mean, think of her non-reaction to uh, the revelation that Lynn Corbray is, like, you know, into little boys. She distances herself from a lot of things, mm-hmm. it, like, in her mind that happens. She's actually very good at this. And she's incredibly intuitive. She does, Like, we can see that she doesn't trust Littlefinger. Yeah, I mean, like, she even, like, in a Game of Thrones, she knew something was up with that whole thing. So, yeah, like, she was just like, I don't understand why, what is this going on? Like, why do you? Why is Littlefinger taking care of this? Oh my god. So. Yeah. Yeah, she's really, like, Littlefinger, you know, definitely read the essay I linked. Her Shadar is never, like, calming down around him. So yeah. I think I think it might be one of those things, too, like, what value is there in questioning this? And, mm-hmm. like, she already is uncomfortable in her position, but what, what choice does she have? So yeah. it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I, I'm, like, rationalizing away too much. It's just, like... No, because like so, and it's another. It's, it's like the previous question. It has to mean something, or else it wouldn't be there. Because it was obviously a conscious decision. But I have no idea what it means, and I'm not going to pretend to at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, all right. The next question mm-hmm. comes from Kirsten, and I'm, she she wrote quite a bit, so I'm going to try my best to paraphrase. And I'm sorry if I take anything out of context. I would love to hear your thoughts about Catelyn's resurrection as Lady Stoneheart. Um, I know many of the A Song of Ice and Fandom, they love this invention, but I have to convince, I hate it. I consider it one of the cruelest fates, save Jane Poole, of course. Uh, I understand that she's meant to show revenge and the futility of it, but I think this point is already made by Ilaria Sand and other plot lines like Tyrion killing Tywin, being haunted by the steed, or Arya killing Raft in Mercy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I loved... Catelyn, I was devastated to learn of her transformation into Lady Stoneheart. Hasn't she and her family suffered enough? And I'm horrified at the speculation that Arya or Sansa will ultimately be the one to kill her, so that or that she would give life to Jon. Uh, it would be so cruel to let the Stark children meet Lady Stoneheart. Wouldn't this traumatize her? So how do you feel about her? A, from a reader standpoint, B, from a literary critic standpoint, and what, in your esteemed opinion, will her storyline lead to? Uh... I don't know. Like, Lady Stoneheart is one of those things that I just kind of accept is there at this point. It's no, like, it's not something I've ever really thought deeply about. I'm not I'm not sure I like it too much. I think that's what that means. From a reader's standpoint, um, it excited me. Not like, I'm so excited about this. I like it for Brienne. Okay. Which I'm not sure is fair to say about a character that was Cat, you know? Yeah, but she's not Cat anymore. She's not, but I really like what she does. I, first of all, I love the atmosphere surrounding the cult of Stoneheart. I think that's brilliantly okay. done. The chapters where she was revealed, it was really effective. And yeah, like thematically in terms of where Brienne is at, I love that. And then there's also the intrigue of like, is she stealing the, you know, will? what's going on up here, because, you know, this ties into the Northern Conspiracy stuff, and you can go really far down a rabbit hole. Oh, and we have. <laughs> we definitely have. 
But, uh, yeah, you know, as, yeah, when you think about it from Cat, from the Stark angle, I think it's much less engaging or even enjoyable. Oh, I doubt it's meant to be enjoyable. And I don't, yeah, I don't know what, like, word I'm looking for. Like, I don't know. I think that when you think of Catelyn as kind of like the personification of the patriarchy and its effect on women. Yeah. That I'm not even sure what my thought is, but just that like this is kind of like, you know, like Alyssa's tears almost. You know, the she tells the story in A Game of Thrones when she's riding across the veil about how like Alyssa was this like ancient and old lady or whatever who, um, uh, she lost all of her family members during her life and she never cried for them. So when she died, the gods decreed that like her, she'll never know peace until the waters of Alyssa's tears, which is like a waterfall on the top of a mountain mm-hmm. until they like water the veil or whatever. And like the water of the, that waterfall never touches the ground. It all turns to mist. Um, yeah, I, I, that's kind of like the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. That, like, well, and you know, like even even just little touches. Her nickname is Mother Mercy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, I think what I was trying to say very badly with the Brienne thing is that I enjoy Stoneheart from a literary critic standpoint far more than from a reader standpoint. Okay, I enjoy thematically how she ties in. Not that we, I don't think we need like a futility of revenge angle but it's it's, it's more than that i don't think that's the angle that she's like she's supposed to be i like no but it's just the whole thing about how like like as as a woman in the system she's in this like impossible situation where like you know she can't show too much emotion but she can't show no emotion like she has to be weak and strong at the same time right mm-hmm. and you know yeah. I, like lady stoneheart is kind of like you know the perverted wish fulfillment of that almost Exactly. Yes. She's definitely, definitely, definitely a perversion of wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, definitely from the uh, gendered angle. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, so that's, I, and I like that effect that it has and how that ties in with the themes that other characters are struggling with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, from a reader standpoint, it's some, yeah, sometimes it's like, it's like, one of, really? it's kind of like the, the faith militants, like every time like they come onto the page, it's just kind of like, ugh these guys why can't why can't shit be simple <laughs> and like that's you know that's such a point too and in, in especially mm-hmm. in the last two books with like you know you feel so piled on yeah with with this messiness but then like that yeah yeah i don't know as to where her storyline will lead can we just like do our we do not speculate yep thing speaking um, of which Balon swan um <laughs> yeah Balan swanson no oh, it's a, Balan it's swanson. A... oh that's, that's very clever Balan swanson yeah it was so yeah, clever Balan i missed swanson it us an email. I love uh it. what do you think geraldine's fate will be is he just a red herring or someone that Balan swan uh hota and obara will snuff out or is there a chance that obara lied to doran will align herself with darkstar mm. and bring her word to doran i don't want to give the show any more credit than it deserves but the fact that Ilaria sand and the sand snakes commit a mutiny in this show makes me think that one of the sand snakes defect may or may not be outside the realm of possibility well it's not outside the realm of possibility but the show means nothing uh, and, and like if if the dornish plotline in the show doesn't prove to you that it means nothing i don't know how to, how to help you <laughs> like, it's so baldly meant nothing yeah 
it meant that they didn't want to film in Spain anymore because it was expensive. Like, yeah. Like, and oh like God, they were so like, bad. please don't fuck off our landmarks. And it was inconvenient. <laughs> like Doran Martell gives his heir to the Lannister. No, like that. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, in terms of Geraldine's fate, um, you know, ag- again, we don't love speculating. He is a little bit of a, like a MacGuffin at the moment. Yeah. And I don't see him getting super fleshed out. I really don't. I mean, like, his his role in A Feast for Crows was pretty clear, and he's kind of played that out. So... Yeah, like, I, I had a crackpot that he goes and runs off and becomes the Vulture Star, because it amused- Vulture King, because it amused me, but <laughs> I I don't take that seriously. And in terms of, you know, Obra betraying Doran, she did swear on her father's grave, and she does seem to want to do right by yeah. Marcella and what happened to her, so if there is a Sand Snake that betrays, I don't see it being obra i don't it could be yeah it's i mean possible. like i think out of like the three of the one the ones who swore in their father's grave like she's the one to i think to take that the most seriously because she's very literal minded all she wanted was something to stab with her spear because she can't process her emotions that's over yeah. in a nutshell and now she has a target and the target's an asshole so yeah. i don't see dark star somehow persuading her like maybe 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 she gets there and dark star's like you know what we should do it instead let's sack old town she's like yes <laughs> uh, sign me up i'll call you vulture king this is great like, but i don't know i know i think whatever happens with dark star will be obviously most important to hota so because mm-hmm. you know he's gonna be the pov character there so and probably how arian reacts to it too yeah if, she, if and when she finds out oh hota all right Moving on, um, this is our fault, <laughs> asking you in the cultural back. We're now in our asks proper. Mm-hmm. I was a bit confused following your discussion of Mercy versus the George R. R. Martin headcanon, so maybe you're willing to elaborate. Do you think Mercy's an effective chapter? I couldn't tell if you thought the issue of revision with the gap scrap, the you know, there was supposed to be five years in mm-hmm. between uh, Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows, and that was scrapped. Uh, so the revision of the five-year gap and the frequent use of rape was problematic or not, and I was wondering if you'd elaborate a bit. Um, well, I think if there's one word for mercy, it's effective. Um. Yeah, um, so I think our point was that you can kind of tell that mm. this chapter was written for a character that was supposed to be a bit older than 11. What is yeah. she in it? She, she would be about yeah. 11, yeah. Yeah. Um, just which, again, like, Arya at, at this point is not supposed to be a comfortable character for us, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole point of Mercy was that her disengagement and her disconnect from the sexuality and the murder, mm-hmm. that was supposed to be, you know, Fucking troubling, disturbing. right? Yeah. Yeah. So... It works for her age. Would it have worked a little better if she was, yeah. say... 16? Yeah. No, just, like, the way she turned on the sexy was, like... And the way she even, like, used her awareness of how young she was. You, you know? Like... 
like, I don't think it ever would have been comfortable, but it yeah. definitely, like, you can stand out and be like, okay, this was a gap scrap chapter a little bit. Like, that that was just our headcanon. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of a rationalization almost, but just, like, to how uncomfortable it is when, like, an 11-year-old is like, oh, this man is, like, you know, a pedophile. I can use that. <laughs> it's kind and of... It obvi- like, right, and, like, it obviously was meant to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, I don't think Martin wrote this. It was like, la la, this is great. Yeah. You know, she's just gonna, like, this is how she's a sneaky assassin now. It's like, no. Uh, um, is it problematic, Julia? It's towing that line something fierce. Like, like we, I think we've said it before that, like, you know, this is something you can get away with, like, once. Yeah. But if it, if this, like, yeah. The, 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 the frequency rape was evoked. That was... That was definitely uh, to a point where, because she's just, like, yeah. so, like, a nerd to this whole concept that so she'd just be like gonna be late for my rape it's like yeah and and the fact that it's kind of presented with this almost whimsy quality to it you know that's definitely to a point especially when you contextualize that with a feast for crows and a dance with dragons where rape is you're not allowed to ever forget rape yeah ever and like and especially considering the fact that like um if she's not directly playing her sister that's kind of definitely something that we're supposed to be considering uh and you know where sansa is right now in her arc um and the shit that she's been dealing with which also doesn't make me feel less anxious but no no but like even like even if you're not we're not talking about like literal physical rape just like the whole like how desensitized sansa kind of is Mm -hmm. to being treated a certain way and just being used all the time um yeah and it's another reason why like the whole thing they did in Game of Thrones with this this chapter is just so fucking offensive. <laughs> it's just so stupid. <laughs> and the whole thing where, like, you know, her sister is the bad guy now, and... Uh, ah. I don't even know what they're going for. No. At least have her contract be the actor who plays Sansa, not Lady Crane, but... it's amazing they've adapted this chapter in some facet three times now and they have yet to get anything about it right yeah well she's in bravos finally so i guess that's right and there's (sighs) actors yeah and she said her name was mercy for no reason uh no i'm trying to ignore the show but the chapter is not free of problems from like a doyalist analysis kind of thing but I still, first of all, I don't find flawless literature particularly, like, interesting. Yeah. Oh, maybe maybe Steven Universe, but... <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But wh- wh- all I'm saying is, like, I think I think that friction, that discomfort, that tension that we experience with it, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't trade the chapter for anything, but yeah, it is the kind of thing, like, he can't do every day. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's kind of like how he handled Jane Poole. Like, you had that one very explicit scene, and then everything else was kind of not glossed over, but, like, definitely handled with a little more... Uh, I don't even know what the word is for. It's, it's not like he yada yada through the rest of your abuse, but just, like, there wasn't that it was off. It was off screen, yeah, and there, it, was there wasn't a, that certain... need to be explicit with it ever again, just because, like, we kind of saw the worst. Yeah, and that scene was, you know, also through the eyes of... Theon, mm-hmm. who was being raped, so, yeah. like, it was, again, to a, a point, and, mm-hmm. yeah. But, like, if, if A Dance with Dragons was, like, you know, half of just Jane being abused on page, like, that would have been a huge problem. 
Yeah, it'd be like if if like Theon, if we had seen Theon's torture on page over and over or something. Who would do that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we should move on. Speaking of who would do that, <laughs> do you want to read this? Yeah. Uh, much of the fandom is turning Hodor's created disability as an ableist move by George R. R. Martin. What are your views on the matter? I personally think uh, it's been blown out of proportion. George R. R. Martin doesn't owe us everything, anything. Uh, his disabled characters are treated with the, with the world's understanding of disabled individuals. The cruel way Bran was, has treated Hodor is depicted as cruel by his writing. Is it ableist of George R. R. Martin to create a forced, forced disability when there are real people who suffer disability through external means? Okay, we don't know. We don't know what Martin did. Mm-hmm. First yeah, of all, like, like first we, of all, yeah. he said, "Hold the door." Is Hodor? That's what we yeah. know. And he said the context of that is totally different. So we have no idea. Mm-hmm. So first of all, just remove the show from the equation. They did this as a shock. Mm-hmm. The way it was filmed was incredibly ableist in this sort of like we're meant to be voyeurs to this tragedy mm-hmm. and we're meant to, you know, it, they turned it into a mystery of, of how did Hodor get to be like that? <laughs> so every time, I, every time I think of that marketing, all I could think of is that stupid episode of Lost in the third season where we find out the mystery of Jack's tattoos. <laughs> and everyone was like, nobody cared about fucking Jack's tattoos. And it's not even that we don't care about Hodor. It's just that it's yeah. like a solution without a problem. You don't mm-hmm. need to explain disability. But the show, the show itself, the reason this this should be getting ableist feedback for what the show did is that the show has a huge fucking problem with how it presents disabilities. Mm-hmm. It has a huge fucking ableist problem. You know, we can we can talk about how there's no PTSD and or any sort of commitment to showing mm-hmm. PTSD in an honest way or the effects of abuse in an honest way or the fact that Bran was missing for a year yeah. uh, which is you know and Willis is cut and uh, like uh, Lalas was just made like hysterically dumb instead of <laughs> yeah it, it's just like they have such an issue on this show and situated in that pattern Hold the door, the ultimate revelation, and oh my god, let's gasp. Yeah. Like, that's not acceptable. I think I have to quibble a little bit with the framing of this ask, though, because, like, the whole idea that this has anything to do with George R. R. Martin doesn't owe us anything. Um, Yeah, you kind of are obligated, I think, to, you know, give a shit when you're depicting disabled characters. You are. You have to think through the implications of what you're writing. Like, I'm sorry. And... I don't think he's done a bad job with that in the series. Uh, and like, you know, like also the way, like the way that like, you know, uh, Bran has been kind of using Hodor and the way that like, like, you know, Bran has this kind of vague feeling of uneasiness that what he's doing is wrong, but like, it doesn't really, doesn't really process in his brain as a character, probably because Hodor is intellectually disabled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bran has his own kind of evil issues going on there. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, a lot of the framing of this question actually rubs me wrong. His disabled characters are treated with the world's understanding of disabled individuals. Martin is writing these books in the 21st century. So, no. <laughs> we don't like moral relativism. Yeah. And then, yeah, but like what Julia was getting at is, you know, you do have to think through the implications for sure, I yeah. think. And, and, Anything about Hold the Door, however it's going to be in the books, it is going to be about Bran. And is that fair to make use of Hodor? You know, even if we somehow assume somehow Hodor does have a disability that was created or facilitated through Bran. Yeah. And Bran Bran probably finds this out. Like, I don't think we would see him on screen causing it. 
but it could be a realization that would, you know, weigh heavily on him. I could see that, I guess. And it doesn't make it free of problems magically. No, of course not. But I do think, given that there's more representation of disability in A Song of Ice and Fire, especially, like, mental disabilities, Martin actually, you know, provides more representation and has a certain pattern of portraying it with the sensitivity, I think it's going to feel different. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the author is unaware of, like, kind of the issues with Hodor because, like, you know, he has other characters defend him. He has other characters treat him horribly. So, Mm -hmm. fucking show poisoning everything. Yeah, the show is really ruining it. Really ruining everything. It's not to say, like, I'm looking forward to the spirited discussion of whether or not this is ableist when the books come out, but again, you know, it's about the pattern. Yeah. And I do think, especially in this department, Martin has the benefit of the doubt on his side. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I don't know, we're just gonna quibble about your conflation and quibble about your framing. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to rip into it. Alright. Uh, Next ask. Can you read it? Sure. Um... For the podcast, Asky Ask, <laughs> what are the similarities between the actions slash motivations of Elena Tyrell and Sybil Spicer, and should they be condemned? You mean Elena Redwin. Uh, I assume they mean, like, um, Elena's motivations for the Purple Wedding and Sybil's motivations for, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, Contraception Gate? <laughs> yeah, obviously in both cases they were thinking about the long-term longevity of their houses, and they went to unsavory means probably immoral means uh, yeah. to to secure that feature and didn't really ask permission and just did this. Yeah, well, because they were both kind of um, thrust in a situation where that other people made that they thought was mm-hmm. unacceptable because, like, uh, we talked about this a bit in the Tyrell Hour, how it seems that, like, you know, Mace made this decision to uh, latch on to first Renly and then to the Lannisters. And Elena was like, oh my god, what are you doing? Stop! And she was kind of against this the whole time. And this was kind yeah. of her solution to the Joffrey problem, at least. Um, and Sybil, of course, uh, this dude shows up at his castle and, like, you know, deflowers her daughter or whatever and then marries her daughter, which is, like, even worse. And she's just, like, she, cut, she kind of By goes, this dude, you mean yeah. the leader of the rebels? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um... And, and like, she she probably had the sneaking suspicion that his rebellion or this war, like, wouldn't end well for him. And now her family was inextricably tied to this rebel cause. And, like, what could mm-hmm. she do to keep him safe, right? Like, And she's an asshole, so that doesn't help her cause either. But, um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the problem. That was her motivation. assholes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Sybil's, like, abusive. That she is. Should they be condemned? I mean... Yes, I mean, like, there's certain things, like, their motivation, I I have some sympathy for, especially Sybil. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, they should be condemned for being assholes, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, But, like, know, with Sybil especially, like, what the fuck was she supposed to do, really? Yeah, and also, what does our condemnation mean? I mean, okay... <laughs> We condemn thee, but like, it's it's moral ambiguity, yo. Seriously, what would you have done in Sybil's place? Yeah, just like been loyal to Rob, I guess, and let your entire family die. Yeah, like 
Honestly. And, you know, Olena had points, too. And also, Tywin Lannister is her liege lord. She's being loyal to her liege lord. She should be praised. Yeah. From a, from a Watsonian perspective, <laughs> she should be totally praised. <laughs> Wait, uh. I don't know. The the fandom dialogue surrounding Sybil really pisses mm-hmm. me off because, like, yes, she's an abusive shit who, you know, forced her daughter to drink an abortificant without her knowing, and yeah. that is really not cool. Her manhandling yep. of her is not cool. Like, and by not cool, I mean like unacceptable. But <laughs> at the same time, what the fuck would you have done? Yeah. Seriously. So yeah, we can condemn them, but okay, I if we condemn everyone. In the books, who has aired? It would be a long freaking list. Yeah, kind of like everyone. And like point. with the purple wedding, like what do we think morally of the purple wedding? It's a little, it's a little sticky, right? It's supposed to be. It's yeah. supposed to be that again the perversion of wish, wish fulfillment. And like we know, Joffrey's an abusive shit. Yeah, like you know, he probably wasn't going to get better with age. Elena did have very good reasons for wanting her granddaughter not to marry him. But, you know, at the end, the the imagery of, of the, you know, kid ch- clawing at his throat and being helpless and, like... Yeah, it affected Alaria. She's a cement role. Yeah, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Even, even Sansa couldn't gain pleasure from it, and she had been abused by him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh... That's that's the tension. We can we condemn them, sure. <laughs> we condemn them, but we also kind of nod sadly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, yeah, exactly. Like I said, it would be a long list. Um, Julia, as a mother, how old would you say baby Sam of the show is? Because he has a full of he- head of hair, but he still seems super young. Yeah, we got like a full body shot of him in the last episode. Um, yeah. I'd say he's about a year. By the last episode, she means, um, yeah. uh, blood of my blood. I don't know when this is coming up, but. Yeah. A year? Yeah, he doesn't look quite big enough to walk. I mean, but like at that, like, because you know, like some babies are born, like you know, even like at, at that that year, at that age, like a month makes a huge difference. And like you know, if you're if you're if the baby is born like two or three weeks early, which is like mm-hmm. still technically full term, then like you know, at a year you'll still be able to see the difference of like a uh of like from a baby who was born at thirty eight weeks. So like, you know. <laughs> It's hard to tell. Like, he doesn't, like, the baby isn't talking yet, and he doesn't seem like he's walking yet, so he's definitely not over a year. Um, I mean, this, this, it's better than, like, you know, the baby that was still being swaddled at the end of season five, timeline-wise, but it's not much better. I mean, this kid should be, like, three by now, so, yeah. They did, they tried. Yeah, they they tried. tried to mitigate it. Uh, one of our contributors is doing a, a timeline of Game of Thrones for all of uh, six seasons, and uh, she's a trooper, and it's going to take her a while, but it's going to be so worth it. The point about Sansa's period is hilarious. Oh, yeah. she, she, like, either was bleeding for months, or Tywin was, like, warping. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, at that age, my period was doing all sorts of crazy things, so who knows? Yeah, that's true. It took a while for yeah. I don't think people need to know this. Anyway, um, <laughs> Weed a portfolio said, "What are your thoughts on that scene in season three or two or whenever where Varys showed Tyrion that he had Marwyn captured captive in a box?" I have no thoughts uh, whatsoever. For, well, first of all, I didn't even remember that scene existed. Was it was it Marwyn? Is that like for sure? I think it was just like the sorcerer that like you know mutilated him. Yeah, D- that I mean. Not I really. Know. I have no thoughts. <laughs> Sorry. 
it's obviously something they've forgotten about too, yeah. based on like Varys's reaction to the red priest lady. So I don't know. Uh, it just well, went nowhere really fast. They they like to give Varys impressive Bond villain sounding moments, and I mm-hmm. think they don't think through the implications of any of this. So okay, whatever. The Varys of the show got revenge. Good cool. for him. We're happy. Not yeah, really. They probably went too in his position. Yeah. What revenge that is. Yeah, why not? <laughs> but yeah, like no, that was it. Was just such a stupid throwaway scene. Uh, okay, sorry if that didn't satisfy you uh, dramatically. They, they. I mean, that's what they do. They throw in these scenes that they think are going to be good, and then they're like, they, they're meaningless. It's meaningless. All right. All right uh, the next one you read. Uh, in the Feast for Crows: A Dance with Dragons defense post, you said that the blind girl was your third favorite chapter, and then you both started giggling before you said your favorite. <laughs> but what are your top five or even top ten? We're giggling again. Because we both can answer that. <laughs> okay, so both of our favorite chapter number one for sure, one hundred percent, is the Princess and the Tower from the Feast for Crows. Yeah, and and like we've read it so many times. Julia has this breakdown, uh, all all lengthy essay. The Princess refused to be cowed. Um, we have probably most of it memorized. Yeah, well, definitely the second part where the conversation. Yeah, I, I have it memorized for sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. Your anger we should have, you know, yep. We should have prepared for this. Um, okay, so in my top five list, definitely the blind girl, for sure. Mm-hmm. And the Dance with Dragons epilogue, more for like its atmosphere than anything, really. Uh, I really like uh, Daenerys 10. From, Danny X. Yeah, Danny X from A Dance with Dragons. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I like the chapters that are all like, you know, kind of detached and vision questy and things like that. Because the blind girl is like... The Blind Girl could be its own kind of lyrical short story, even. Um, well, because I was thinking of the one with Ned's Fever Dream in it, too. Yeah. But which chapter was that? Seven? I don't know, because that's, that's the problem. I don't remember what else happens in the chapter. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, I know Broad Strokes, but yeah. Yeah. Well, what's I, the one with Cat? Cat's Whispering Woodbound? I don't know, because those are just pieces that I love, but... <sighs> that whole chapter is really good, though. Um, I really like... Uh, Cersei's, uh, the chapter where Orain Waters comes back and says that, uh, Dragonstone is theirs. Uh, I think that's my favorite Cersei one, just because it's kind of like a march of folly. Um, uh, my fa- really, my favorite Cersei is the one where she meets with the High, uh, the High Sparrow. Yeah. It's that just so is- Cersei. Mm-hmm. And I think it's impossible not to feel something during her walk. I really do. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think of, like, a Sansa chapter I really like, but it's hard for me to differentiate the chapters. Oh, oh, easy, easy, easy for Sansa is the, is the one where she builds the snow castle. Oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. Mm-hmm. Brienne turns me into a puddle of feels with everything, but I have to say there's this wonderful horror quality to her um, chapter, The Whispers. Yeah. That's just, like, building sense of dread. I know that's an odd choice because it's, like, nibble dick telling weird stories for most of it, but... <laughs> that's the best part. Read, like, if you just, like, read it and you kind of, like, let yourself get lulled into this, like... Yeah, it's it's a, it's really good. It's really really good. Yeah, but yeah, the Tower of Joy uh, chapter has definitely got to be up, up there, and the not so much the chapter, but the scene where he's talking to Cersei in the garden, and he says, mm-hmm. you know, I've made more mistakes than you can imagine, but that was not one of them. Um, the uh, the Brand Brand's final chapter. Yes, pretty good. A lot of these are in a Dance of Dragons and a Feast for Crows. Funny that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, 
Well, like any of the cat ones. Really, the cat, the last cat one is quite affecting. Mm-hmm. And har- horrific. But I don't know. I prefer her Whispering Woods monologue. Um, I really like the one where uh, Jamie uh, breaks the secret with Run uh, with the trebuchet. You know what my favorite Jamie chapter is? Because that one's what? wonderful. What? Hilly Cinema. <laughs> no. No, no, my favorite Jamie chapter is his, um, he's been standing vigil for seven days. His, his oh, opener yeah. in the Feast for Curse. And Just so wonderful. Uh, Tyrion's chapter where he kills Tywin is also very good. Like, the part at the beginning of his conversation with Jamie is also amazing. Yeah. Um. Sorry, John. John. No, no, there, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of John chapters I really like too. Like, even in a Feast for Crows. Not, not even a Feast for, in, no, a, in a Clash of Kings. <laughs> even in a Clash of Kings, there's, I remember a couple of chapters that I really enjoyed. I enjoy his chapters, but it's, I'm never emotionally grabbed by him in the same way that I am with others. I don't know why. It's just my thing with John. I like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no Danny X equivalent for me with him. No, not yet anyway. Um, I'm sure there will be, there could be. I don't know, man. There's, yeah. uh, we really should have planned this. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe we could do like a post at some point with our top tens. Maybe even a fandom following post. Yeah, the 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 reason we were just giggling is like automatically <laughs> Princess of the Tower. We don't even need to. Yeah, think. I mean, we're giggling again now. <laughs> yeah. Right, anyway, and even even like we would probably leave off any other Ariane chapters from the list, but if I'm being honest about what I reread, like mm. you know, Queen yeah. Maker, her sample chapters. Yeah. yeah, her sample chapters especially. Like, if all her chapters oh are like that, and there's like ten of them, oh my god. They'll probably only be five or six, though. She's probably gonna die. Oh, shut up! So, um, I will say, like, King's Moot chapter grew on me, but it's, you know, definitely yeah, it's not gonna be definitely not my top, top ten. Top ten, no. But it's, uh, I have an appreciation, especially after seeing the King's Moot of the show. Uh... <sighs> relativeness <laughs> um more more like clarification out of what's come out of past podcasts on one note on the jamie brienne romance thing i'm not really a shipper but what i think it might be important to women who don't conform women to who don't conform to the traditional idea of womanhood white cis western petite to see a woman like brienne be loved by jamie who's coming into his own chivalry arc i don't know it felt like the way you guys were adamant about not seeing together i personally felt gross when women who aren't traditional are automatically relegated to bro that's just me um i think we're being told off <laughs> okay um we are being told off well i think like I, I i keep thinking about your lord byron comment about whether martin's a romantic or not yeah because i think what we were struggling with when we were asking ourselves is this a romance we weren't saying do they have romantic interest in each other well, they obviously do because they they obviously do and they obviously have sexual interest in each other too and Definitely, there's a love that's built. Like, that's mm-hmm. not what we were saying. We were saying, basically, did Martin sit down and write a romance? Yeah. And I don't, I still don't think he did. But I don't, I think, um, cause I'm not going to change this because I'm very comfortable with my reasons for doing this. But, uh, yeah, we will continue to talk about platonic relationships between a man and a woman as a bromance. Yes, we will keep doing that. Um, Mm-hmm. But, and, oh, yeah, but sure. yeah, uh, I kind of, I kind of see how the, an unfortunate implication of that will be that we're implying that Brienne is like not a woman. 
right? She's a mm-hmm. bro, she's manly, which is not our intention at all. Just that, like, you know, platonic relationships, like, the genders don't really matter. So, um, yeah, two women can be bros. <laughs> yeah, we, we call it, we have a bromance. Yeah. Like, that's just how we conceive of it. We really, really hate unnecessarily gendered terms. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, actually, I got told off a long, long time ago because I wrote a about brosami, yeah. which is Asami and Bolin, and I got told off by it for calling it a bromance, and I was like, yeah. or a bro TP, and I was like, why don't you calm the fuck down? <laughs> or, or like when we some when uh, Bora, right? We talked about Bora as a bromance. We got yelled at because we were oh, masculinizing yeah. uh, Korra. <laughs> Yeah, this yeah, happens to us actually, all the time, um, but yeah, we're gonna stay the course with this one. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely are. And, uh, like, it's vernacular at this point, too. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. So, yeah, that was an unfortunate implication. We're not trying to say that, like, they don't have romantic feelings towards each other, though. Yeah, and, and, and like, that- in Jamie's arc, you know, the fact that she's not traditionally feminine is very important. Because she, yeah. that makes her kind of the antithesis of Cersei, first of all. And second of all, because, like, you know, it's a subversion of that whole chivalric ideal where, you know, you have the knight and the fair maiden and all that stuff. So it's the subversion of bear and the main fair. Yeah. yeah. So, that too. I don't know. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll stick to our guns, but we were really kind of trying to look at it from more of an author writing perspective than anything mm-hmm. else. So that's just, yeah. that's where we're coming from. We're, we're a fan of, we're a fan of non-traditional women. To be yeah. Honest, so we're a fan of traditional women too. We're, um, we're a fan of yeah all all <laughs> conceptions of womanhood the whole exactly. spectrum. All right. Uh, so cynical classicist said, "Do you think the writers? I assume she means C and D, or D and D and C or whatever we're calling them now, are going too over the top of the manipulative Tyrells? Even in the history and lore video, which implies the Tyrells manipulated the characters into getting killed. What? And they the Tyrells did? surrendered Highgarden due to the influence of Harlan's wife." course uh also do you think the tyrells do you think of the tyrells as the lannisters with pr um yeah i remember watching that history and lore video i remember um, nat dormer was nat nat dormer narrated i remember that um they implied that tyrells manipulated them into going the field of fire that's that's a neat trick (laughs) like you know the king of the rock and the fact that the egon the conqueror was invading had nothing to do with it then yeah, no, it was because their steward suggested it, and and they surrendered because of those like manipulative ladies. Yeah, despite the fact oh. that like you know, they were in a hopeless position, uh, and they weren't Dornish. Patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Uh, I mean, in the same situation, the Dornish would be like, "Fuck you, we're not opening the castle." But um, <laughs> uh, like, okay, so way back in season two, uh-huh. maybe season three. I'm sorry that I don't remember the genius of the show. Nat Dormer gave an interview about. Marjorie and she was like, yeah, you know, in the trails, the women are the smart ones in it. So, like, I think D and D just ran. Like, that's D and D's how D and D probably pitched it to her. Yeah, and I think they just run with that a lot because you know, women on top. It's these like manipulative, wonderful women. So, like, of course, Harlan's wife would have mm-hmm. like had influence in their history and lore. Are they going too over the top? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> This is dialed up to, like, 15. This isn't even... This bypassed 11. Yeah, like, the whole stuff with the Lena and everything. And, and like, they seem to be implying that Marjorie negotiated the deal with the Faith now. 
and that she negotiated like that kind of flew past my brain because it's so stupid i guess that the, they implied that she negotiated the marriage contract with littlefinger in season two they implied <laughs> they a that. lot i can't i still can't make sense of what happened in blood of my blood and like like i said i'm not sure when this episode's coming out i don't think we're gonna get clarity it's, i it's doubt another- it we've never have before <laughs> It's another bat finger in the handsome young man thing in terms of how illogical it is. But yeah, of course they're going too far with it. Of course they are. They're like, welcome to Game of Thrones. They don't know, they, they don't understand nuance. They can't achieve it ever. Yeah. They think it's great that Marjorie's a sexual manipulator. So she's like giving Joffrey a hard on and wrapping him around her little finger. And then Elena kills him anyway. Yeah. LOL. Like what? What's the point of that then? Um, the point is that she didn't know that Elena was going to kill him because it's the one thing she doesn't scheme in. Do you think of the Tyrells as the Lannisters with PR? On the show, I would say the Tyrells are way more petty. Yeah. Remember you tried to ask the dude in the bar? Yeah. Uh, the dude in the bar thought the Lannisters were the bad guys. Um, but why? But he couldn't articulate he why. Couldn't, he couldn't, yeah, articulate. he couldn't articulate any reason why the Tyrells were the good guys and the Lannisters were the bad guys. Um, yeah, because... I think this is just, like, a failure of the writing because, like, it's definitely their intention that Marjorie is somehow being victimized by Cersei, right? That's what Natalie Dormer seems to think is going on, which blows my mind. Yeah, and, and she says, and, like, she called Cersei, uh, Carol, a lying, scheming bitch. So, like, she has to think yeah. somehow that happened, even though all she did was perjure herself. <laughs> She has to be punished for that, apparently. God, it's so stupid. Uh, This is so not worth analysis. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just not. They have no... They're writing what they think is really intelligent politics. And what they're ending up writing instead are these, like, bizarre stereotypes that are just, like, moving where they need them to go. And it's not... It's not coherent. It's just not. Um, In the books, are the Tyrells the Lannisters with PR? I think... Yes. Uh, Well, because... Well... They're kind of doing what, like, most families in this context are doing, was just, just, like, trying to accumulate power, which is exactly what the Lannisters are doing. So, and especially with the whole, like, marriage thing, right? Like, let's just yeah. keep marrying people so we can glob land. Yeah. They need a daughter's trust law. They definitely do care more about the PR than, than Lannisters do, and probably because as Reach Lords with all those fucking houses under them, yeah. they need to more. Yeah, because the Lannisters are just kind of like, fuck what people think of us, right? Like, the lion doesn't have to... The lion never... Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's actually a show quote, but if it was, it was it was the best show quote ever, where Tywin was like, the lion doesn't care about the opinion of the sheep. Um, it's from season one, yeah, so, so. <laughs> it makes sense. But yeah, that's actually... That's something Tywin would actually say. Why don't you write like that? Because it's Charles Dance, and let's like get him on the screen with Maisie Williams instead. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, sorry, we're going back to Dorne for a little. Actually, we have two Ariane asks coming up in a row, so I'll just deal with it. Um, oh, are we actually going to? Tra- we're actually going to do that one, are we? The I think one? we have. Let's do this one first. Actually, let's do this one first. <sighs> this is because this is we, a really we got quick this one answer. yesterday. We got this one yesterday, and it was just like, yeah. Okay, you you read it because I don't think I could. <laughs> do you think Hota might have molested Ariana's child? All of, I'm trying not to laugh because this isn't funny, but like, yeah. all throughout his POVs, he is constantly lusting after and objectifying her, while at the same time always thinking about her as a child and wistfully calling her his little princess and just generally infantilizing her to a disturbing degree. Then there's his over, ridiculously overzealous killing 
of Eris. It seemed personal, almost like he's taking out the competition. And Ariane's thoughts of Hota carry several red flags, IMO. Um, like, I don't think there's anything here. I don't. I have no idea. I think, first of all, he definitely objectifies her in a way, but mm-hmm. it's I wouldn't call it lusting. To me, it's very much supposed to mirror Doran mm-hmm. and how they are both uncomfortable with the fact that she is a sexual person now yeah. and that she's grown up. And that's why his infantile, my little princess, and, you know, that mirrors the way Doran thinks about her skinning her knees still. Yeah. Like, it's it's all about a dad who can't really deal with his daughter being grown. And Hotez just, like, an extension of that. Yeah, and, and like, you know, React is just, like, you know, her, her, like, kind of sexy dress and everything like that. You're like, oh, she's a woman, but she's my little princess! And what's, like, kind of tragic for both of them is that this is a woman who's been sexually active for almost a decade now like this is yeah. not new information <laughs> um but no like i don't i i don't see that as lust uh his ridiculously overzealous killing eris charged him yeah that wasn't ridiculously overzealous that was like one swipe it was one swipe and eris also like you know this is this is treason this party that they intercepted and then eris is charging at him he had to. He had to. I, I. I don't. I mean, just the fact that like Ariane doesn't blame him at all doesn't suggest that it was overzealous in the least. No, and I've literally no thoughts whatsoever. Like no understanding of what these red flags and Ariane's thoughts could possibly be. Mm-hmm. I agree. She called him a, a captor once because because he, he was captured literally captured. Yes. <laughs> But um, the quote that I think best summarizes their relationship is uh, from Ariane's point of view, which is, Ariane smiled deeply. It was good to see that seamed, scarred face and hear his gruff, deep voice and thick, nervosy accent. He's like... He's like, he's protect- like a security like, blanket. He's he's kind of like a symbol of her childhood. Yeah. Like, just really nothing there. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, like, mock the reading of this or anything. It's yeah. just I think it's I think it's seeing something... Not intended whatsoever. Uh, okay, next, Ariane ask. Do you want to read this? It's a three-parter. Okay, question for the next podcast. Number one, how much do you think Ariane wants revenge for Elia? Two, what do you think? Who, who do you think would be a good spouse for her as heir to Dorne? Three, which Hogwarts house <laughs> would you put your famous Song of Ice and Fire characters in? Can we can we do the last one first? Because I know you will love it. <sighs> okay, have you people read Harry Potter? That's all I have to say about the whole putting people to houses thing. <sighs> Joy, it's like a really, really popular fandom tendency. Don't take it from me. I, I, I know, I know, but I don't understand it because the entire series is about how it's wrong to categorize people from an early age and then expect them to live up to these like social expectations. It is our choices, far more than our abilities, that determine who we are. Um, and it's, not, like, it's not like they've helped at all with the Pottermore stuff, so, you know... No, like, if Ariane went to Hogwarts, which house would she want to be in would be very dependent on family history, and this is a weird question. Like, it's canon that you basically choose what house you get to go to, right? Everybody knows this. Right, like, are you asking us, is she more brave, ambitious, nice, or, you know, smart? Like, which, which, what is her defining trait? You know, those aren't the four and-all and be-all traits in humanity. And, like, she's, like, each. And... Yes. Like like everybody. <laughs> uh, she's, I'm sorry. she's a mixture. Yeah. I mean she's definitely ambitious. She's definitely brave. Uh like I don't know. We don't get it. We just yeah. don't get it, honestly. 
She's definitely smart and she's definitely a very like socially warm person. Yeah. So despite being an introvert. The world is her oyster. Put her if you're writing fanfic, put her wherever you it makes thematic sense. Yeah. But also reread Deathly Hallows, please. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm not trying to be rude. Like, everyone does this, but it's mm-hmm. just that I've never understood it. <laughs> okay, how much do you think Ariane wants revenge for Elia? She mm-hmm. never frames it at all like that. Ever. Like, the closest is when she's telling Doran off for, like, you know, just kind of sitting there while his siblings are being killed. Um, and even that was just, like, barely a pretext before they went on with their conversation. So... We we always talk about the intersection of the political and the personal. Yeah. And like nothing sums this up better than in the Queenmaker chapter where like Dark Star is talking to her like, You want revenge and dead Lannisters and she's like, I want my birthright yeah. in her mind, but she doesn't say it. Yeah. Like the the war with the Lannisters is so much less important to her about like mm-hmm. earning her place in her father's trust and love and Yeah. Uh, oh, I hate them. They're gross. But yeah, like, like she never really thinks about it. Like she was like seven ish when Elia died, and like yeah, I, th- I think like this whole yeah. thing is really not at all about Elia, more about like how her father and her uncle kind of felt about it. Yeah, it's it's somewhat about Oberyn. Yeah, somewhat. And I think she does truly want to see anyone who killed him. Like she doesn't want them to be like rewarded. Yeah, of course. But the revenge angle is like maybe reason yeah. number forty three on a but, long and the list whole thing, of reasons. The whole thing with like Oberyn's death, it wasn't so much that Oberyn died, but just that like they keep shitting on you and you keep taking it, right? And and the other thing about Ariana Doran, and I'm sorry to stick on this, they're the same person. Mm-hmm. So any criticism she has of him, like you keep letting people shit on you and you just take it, is not. Suddenly, also a, a, a criticism of herself yeah. about, like, maybe for nine years, she's let herself sit on this information and hasn't done jack shit about it or something. She kept letting him, like, you know, arrange these horrible blind dates and, like, you know, give her this, this insultingly menial job to do and everything like that. And, and like, she had, like, a really shitty plan to yeah. fix it, but it obviously was never going to go anywhere, so. Because she's a stupid face. Yeah. Welcome to the Martells, oh. everyone. Her defining trait is just her Martellness. Self de- <laughs> is self deprecation. Yeah. It's it's not intellect or ambition. It's self deprecation, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um. Okay, but yeah, <laughs> I think we've talked about this before. <laughs> Who do you think would be a good spouse for her as heir to Doran? Um. I mean, it totally depends, kind of like you know what the political situation is when she makes this decision. So, I mean, I have my crack ship, and it's not—it's it's so stupid. It's not even a crack ship. So it's a crack ship. Yeah. Come on. No, but it's not like I ship them. It's just that it's like an a political idea that I think could work I th- out. I think we talked about this in our two and a half hour yeah. episode on Dorn, but um, it's Ari Anders. Yeah. It basically, if Anders Ironwood's wife is like dead, then Arian marrying him. Anders Ironwood would be a really good match yeah. because he's like you know the most quote unquote problematic uh, bannerman. Yeah, and it and it would prevent um, any kind of like you know splitting of the Dornish faction shenanigans and things like that. So if yeah, Cletus hadn't got yeah, if Cletus hadn't gotten himself killed, I would say him, but he's dead, so totally that would have been good. That would have been really good. Um, and then I guess Gwyneth would have inherited Ironwood, but yeah, whatever she. She's probably Bill anyway. If if Innis gives up her if Innis gives up her claim, 
then yeah this is down another rabbit hole uh in terms of like if if anders is off the market which he probably is yeah. uh i don't know like just pick a powerful ba- like i think it should be someone dornish because yeah. Doran was with Malario, so... Yeah. I mean, it, it totally depends, like, what direction this, this stuff goes into in The Winds of Winter. So, I mean, if, if they're going to, like, be more outward-looking or more inward-looking. So, yeah. Not Aegon. It's unlikely, in my opinion. I mean, I'm, probably most of the fandom disagrees. It's certainly possible, but I think it's unlikely. Yeah. All right. Moving on from Doran. Oh, Regarding your retrospective on Marine, I would be interested. I would be interested in seeing you uh, writing or doing an episode about D&D's rejection of one of Martin's key themes, identity. You note that uh, Danny's struggles with identity are stripped away. So too are those struggles for everybody else, especially the Starks. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, didn't we? Um, didn't we talk about this? It might have been our Marine podcast. I don't remember, but I think we talked about how there's like nothing connecting Arya to her family anymore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess, like, uh, uh, Unabashed Book Snobbery centered specifically on identity? We could do that. Suppose. Sure. I mean, it um, is, it is a major theme, especially in Feast Dance. So. This, this season has taken on a new level of meaningless in terms of what anyone is. I mean, like, yeah. Rickon Stark is in Winterfell, and <laughs> neither Brittany nor Johnny can seem to give a shit. They're just kind of, like, having infighting with each other. Yeah, uh, the spoilers for tonight are, oh my god. Hey, my legitimate sister is right here, but why don't you make me king? Why not? Okay, fine. Julie, that's a major spoiler because that probably won't come till at least episode 9 or 10. Oh, yeah? So, I don't know. Well, it's got to be before Bastard Bowl. This episode tonight is called The Broken Man. So everyone's like, Septon Maribald's going to turn up. And you're like, um, he's definitely not going to be what you think he is. If Even if he is. He's going to be a salty Ian McShane, apparently. He's like, I kind of like tits. <laughs> tits and dragons doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could definitely hone in on identity, though, because, like, <laughs> first of all, this is kinslaying central this season. No, that's the theme. The theme is kinslaying. <laughs> yeah, so, like, any thought that identity matters, because, you know, generally identity is tied into family yeah. and shit. Like, Maybe people could stop killing each other. Uh, what's, what's Theon's identity now? He's gonna, like, oh my god. Yeah. We could, we could do that. Yeah. We could definitely do that. Well, it's, it's on the list. Consider it on the list. Yeah. I mean, when it, when it comes time to do a season six retrospective, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I can't wait. I especially can't wait to do brands where he's just like, that's my father. <laughs> I don't think we should do plotline by plotline like we did last year. That would just be too exhausting. Oh, we'll see. I, we'll see. We'll see. We'll yeah. see where it ends up. We we haven't. We kind of don't plan out our unabashed book snobberies as much as you think they do. Uh, think we do? Yeah. They just vomit out of us when we get really pissed off about something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So this is also a show. Ask in the Tower of Joy scene in the show, Bran says that he's heard the story many times, which means Ned must have told him about it mm-hmm. since only he and Howland survive. But isn't it kind of implied in the book that never Ned never really talks about Lyanna or the rebellion in general? Yeah, he By certainly never he outright stated. Yeah, he certainly never talks about Liana like hardly ever. Uh, and the rebellion, like um, he did, he did talk to Bran. There was one scene where he talks to Bran. Uh, Bran asks him if the King's Guard are the greatest knights ever, and uh, Ned says, "You know, the greatest knight I ever knew was Sir Arthur Dane, and he would have killed me if Helen Reed hadn't saved me." Uh, and that seems to be it. Like, so, 
Yeah. Yeah. So according to D and D, that's them like learning about this epic story and yeah, epic battle. He doesn't like, as far as we know, he doesn't he doesn't tell anyone about the Tower of Joy ever. No, I don't see why he would because yeah. there's kind of major secrets surrounding it yeah. that he doesn't <laughs> want people to find out. And like, Cat so, doesn't know anything about like anything that went on there. Oh. Speaking of cat, a little Sonyan wants to be on my lap right Aww, now. Hi, Sonyan. Come here, buddy. Okay. Um, sorry, he's he's getting on. There we go. Okay. Yeah, and like, I mean, the way D and D framed it in the outside the episode interview, it was kind of like, it was like all they knew that an epic fight had to have happened because his dad was still alive. But then they also made it seem like this was just like common knowledge, not just mm-hmm. with the Starks, but with everyone, like everyone grew up hearing about this story. Yeah. And I, I don't know from who, especially given that it was such a dishonorable kill on Helen's yeah. part. Well, cause Ned was bragging about it. So he changed it. But it's like, as far as I could tell the whole, like, uh, I don't know, but, like, I have, like, you know, relatives, more than one, who, like, whenever they mention the Second World War, they say, like, very vague things and then move on very quickly. Uh, and I'm sure other people have that experience with, you know, family members who's been, who've been through shit. And that's kind of my impression about the way Ned talks about the rebellion. Like, he'll say something very vague or something that's, like, you know, pretty common knowledge, but not specifically do with him, and then he'll move on. Uh, so there, there are things that his children probably know, and, like, you know, things that are public knowledge, like, they know that, you know, he, uh, he, uh, you know, lifted the siege of Storm's End and that, you know, Tyrell and Redwin surrendered to him. They probably know that. They probably know that something happened with Lyanna's body because that's also public knowledge. But, yeah. But, like, but, yeah. like I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like, think there was, like, you know, a sharing circle where he was just like, let me the tell show, you about the The show is just dumb as shit. Of course, the Tower of Joy is about the fight, not about, like... Yeah. It's, it's the, you know, pebble, not the stream. But, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know, man. <laughs> It's just so badly done. And this idea that, like, first of all, the idea that this was even this dishonorable kill, like, it's a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's yeah. just, it's just bad. It's just bad. I wouldn't, it doesn't mean anything. And yes, uh, Julia wrote this really long piece that we'll link about, uh, yeah. how they just so missed the point with Tower of Joy. And yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I know it was foretold that Malara Heatherspoon would die, but why did Cersei kill her anyway? Wait, the answer is that it's because it's a self-fulfilling process, prophecy. Uh, yeah, so it's not like Willara wouldn't have wouldn't like would have died anyway if Cersei hadn't done something, right? Like, yeah, she died because Cersei did something. She died because Cersei did something, and yeah. it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because Cersei killed her right then. Yeah, her death. Can't you smell her? She's close. Like, yeah, it's Cersei. Um, but yeah, like, I, I'm sorry, I thought you meant, like, the Cersei character reason. She didn't want anyone who witnessed that to be around, and then the crush on Jamie was annoying, so. Yeah. Bitch has to go. <laughs> probably more, more about the prophecy that she overheard with Cersei than anything else, right? Yeah, that's my impression. Yeah. I don't know, I, it's not important, but I think it's more likely that she didn't push down the well, she just kind of did nothing when she fell. She Alison Hendricks did. I, that, that's, yeah. that's my interpretation. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's the self fulfilling. Yep, I just I don't want to hear I don't want to hear anything against it again. Like this, oh my god, this stupid idea that like, well, I mean, the prophecy said so, so it has to happen. Like, what? <laughs> she did give her the the she did get the number of babies right. Yeah, I'll give her that. She's pretty good. 
Maggie's yeah. pretty good. Actually, we have another ask down somewhere, and I'll paraphrase it, but it was just like, why did why did she say the word Valencar instead of little brother? Because she's <laughs> super mysterious. She's a super mysterious foreigner who likes to be super mysterious. Yeah, it's just like her little game. Yeah. She could have she could have started playing Phineas and Ferb's little brother song instead, but there's not there. <laughs> Your obsession that song so really amuses me. Okay, uh, I, I know. Are we finished with that? Because I accidentally skipped one. Uh, we are, yeah. So why don't you read the one you skipped? Uh, why would uh, would you have liked it better if Eris's chapter had been told from Ariane's POV? I feel like I answered this at some point. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we answered it more than once actually, but that doesn't matter. Um. Well, word of God is that he would have. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Because, like, there was a point to that chapter that was made very well, which, like, wouldn't have been at all possible if it was from Arian's point of view. But I really, really wish we had a POV chapter for her before the Queen Maker. <laughs> like, yeah, I think too. it's 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 a question of, like, you know, and, not I. Like, it's it's an and question and an or question. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know... I could agree with that for sure. Uh, um, even no, because you needed Hota to witness all of it. But I would have loved Ariane's perspective when Doran arrives. Yeah, oh, that was uh, so sad though. Like I made you a fake daddy, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, whatever. See you later." <laughs> I I grounded your son, Yin. <laughs> um, that being like, so responsible. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wrote something long on this, mm-hmm. and I'll link it. But George R. R. Martin did say that he regrets it. However, part yeah. of his reason for situating from Eris's eyes was to clear up any, like, he he wanted Eris's motives to be very clear yeah. going into Queenmaker. And even still, even still, there's people that are like, yeah. oh, it's Doran paid him. What did you read? He is madly in love with her. <laughs> and it's all about his honor. Yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. Um... Uh, I enjoy it for what it is, mm-hmm. but I agree that we would have benefited from a less opaque Ariane. Um, and I also wouldn't have hated if our first introduction to her hadn't been from the male gaze, but, yeah. you know, that was to the point, too. Mm-hmm. And I really would have preferred it because I think it would have changed how Roy Detrice does her voice. Oh, my God. Yeah, but, like, yeah. You know, it really would have helped, I think, uh, Ariane's. I think it would have helped Ariane's kind of... Uh, perception within the fandom if like we weren't just kind of thrusting her brain in the in the queen maker because like i've I've said this before every single chapter we've had of hers is like her in complete crisis mode and her world turning upside down (laughs) yeah she's like running around flapping her arms at all this point (laughs) like i know he couldn't have planned it because of gab scrap but if we Uh could have had just like a storm of swords chapter anything would Maybe, maybe instead, what we could do is like I don't know if there was like a fic that explored like when Marcella first gets the door or something. That would be really interesting. And how I imagine that how um, Arian reacts to that. And moving on, um, <laughs> you hate me. Go read Princess in the Scepter. Uh, Anonymous said. I don't know if you've ever talked about this before, but could you give me your opinion on why some of the TV watchers of Game of Thrones are so angry about critics of the show and not received uh, and not um, received well by the comments of book readers? I'm new to fandom culture. I don't get it. Is it something that happens frequently in adaptations? Or why in this case is it so hard to accept that the show has a lot of defects? 
Uh, and why does the media praise the TV show so much? <laughs> the last one, I have no fucking idea. I mean, like, we can get no, into conspiracy the theories. The, easi- the last one's the easiest. It's called Money. <laughs> I, I don't want to go there, like, without extraordinary evidence, to tell you the truth. But What's the extraordinary evidence? It's a really popular TV show. People get page clicks when they write about it. Like, it's not... I don't think this is a tinfoil hat thing. I think this is just how the media industry works. Yeah, but I don't like that. I really don't. <laughs> I don't like this idea that there's so little intellectual integrity. Well, okay. I'm an idealist, I, I suppose. Um, I will say, what I will say is I think the vitriol aimed against book readers and just the general dismissal, I think that is unique Yeah. to this show. Even Even Lord of the Rings, there were complaints, but it's not like... The complaints are so different in nature, I would say, Mm -hmm. for the show now. There's so much more that's a problem. Like, not even just as an adaptation, as a show in and of itself. Well, like, usually, like, when an adaptation is this, like, off into La La Land, like, nobody connects it to the source material anymore. It's just like it's it's like you know like True Blood. Nobody was talking about how the how the True Blood show relates to the books because it's it's like it was just like they just went off the books and they admitted it and like you just kind of accepted it, right? But like in this case, they're, they're still insisting that they're somehow connecting that connected to the books. So I, I think and, that's and we kinda... have we have Benioff outright saying mm-hmm. that the you know the show is divergent and will continue to be, and yeah. people won't listen and people don't accept it. Um. Is it because The Song of Ice and Fire isn't done? Is that it? Maybe. I mean, the Harry Potter movies were coming out before the series was done. And I like, I mean, there, there were like all these threads I remember like on all the Harry Potter forums back in the day where like people were asking, you know, sh- book readers questions and being like actually like very respectful and thankful for their contributions. So I don't know. Maybe that wasn't the entire fandom. That's probably because they were like really, really fucking confused. Yeah. Well. I don't see how Game of Thrones is less confusing. They had to go on MuggleNet to be like, what the fuck is a Horcrux? Like, yeah. I don't know. Um, But, like, at the, at the same time, too, you know, the the Harry Potter movies, I have issues, especially starting with movie three, but mm-hmm. they they weren't divergent in the sense that Game of Thrones is divergent. No. I mean, I, I, I'll, 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 link, I'll link my uh, D&D adapt Harry Potter. I like that one. <laughs> but it's like... Yeah, it's it's just... Uh, this is unique. This, Mm -hmm. I would say it is unique. And I don't know, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to assume to know what all the show watchers are thinking. I think there are some people who maybe cling to the show as being, I I don't know. I know, we've had theories about, like, how, like, you know, the first season made them feel really smart. (laughs) You know, something like that. But, like, I don't, we're not going to psychoanalyze people who don't know. Well, and that's the case for some people. And I think for other people, it's, you know, they really enjoy their engagement and they don't want that, you know, disrupted. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, y- I think people like really enjoy like, you know, making theories and everything, but I don't, what I don't understand is like the kind of juxtaposition between like the theory crafting and the refusal to read the books. You know, that seems to be a yeah. thing where people are making theories and they're happy to look at the wiki, but not actually read the books. That confuses me. Yeah. And that's really common. Is it common? Um, I mean, you spend a lot more times in the dark corners of the internet than I do. So well, uh, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. So, back when I was on Sully, the show really stressed me out. And I sometimes do the 
thing where when I'm reading a book or if I'm about to watch like, you know, season finale or something, I might like read the last chapter first or I might look up a review to see what happens or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I read all the wiki pages during season two, all of them. And I remember because I remember Arya Goes Blind is where it left off and I was really pissed off because it was right before Dance with Dragons came out, I guess. Maybe it was during season one then. Mm-hmm. Must have been. Uh, or the wiki just wasn't updated yet with the Dance with Dragons spoilers. But, uh, yeah, so I was pretty, pretty, pretty huge into that. And the reason I actually started reading the books was because I found R plus L equals J as a theory before I had read anything. And then I thought, this is really interesting. I'm going to read the books now. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to judge How anyone. Could, for- are, like, as a sh- Unsullied, did R plus Lake with J mean anything to you whatsoever? I found it exciting on an intellectual level because I was, like, also reading the wikis on who Rhaegar is and who Lyanna is. It didn't make oh. sense with the show canon. Like, that, that, like, in a void, of course, that wouldn't make sense. But I'd, like, been reading up on Robert's Rebellion. I'd been reading all of it. However, at the, in my very lame defense, I was also under the impression this was a close adaptation. Yeah. Um, because at, at the time, I was doing this before season three came out and it seemed to be and it, and the reaction yeah, seemed to less. be positive. Yeah. So, like, I understand engaging with it in that way. I yeah, like, don't understand why... We're not why... judging anyone. Like, we're not judging you for being unsullied. We're not judging you for engaging with the material as an unsullied. It's just, like, the vitriol at book readers. Well, yeah, and, and at this point, like, because my whole thing was I was really interested to hear any book reader insights. Mm-hmm. And that, like, again, it was it was a very Harry Potter, like, this is fleshing this out for me. This is exciting to me. Yeah. And this is something I want to know more about to the point where I ended up reading the books and I'm not much of a reader. Just, it, it seems to be that, like, um, they want to insist that, you know, the, like, the, the books, the show is related to the books, the show is superior to the books even, and, like, you know, the show means something for the book canon, but they're also unwilling to accept the contribution of book readers. It's it's bizarre. It's um that you know they they kind of want it both ways. Yeah. Where they want the show to be seen as brave and bold and better than the books and improving on Martin's mistakes and improving on those boring feast dance books and mm-hmm. or at least feast. And uh but then at the same time they also want to be able to use stuff that hasn't been established in the show. They want to use Martin's rich backworld and like give the show meaning that it simply doesn't have. And Benioff and Weiss are so guilty of this too. Yeah. So you know, truthfully, they set the tone. They set the tone of snobby book fans. And, yeah. you know. Them and Maisie Williams. But I'm sure Maisie Williams got it from them. Yeah, no, she definitely got it from them. Um, She's like a kid when she was hired. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to understand it. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I really don't think I'm ever going to understand it. Because, you know, generally when there's bad adaptations, you at least, like, I know Watchmen was a bad adaptation. If you say so. And whether you enjoy it in and of itself, like, that's fine. But you at least recognize it and then you hear the complaints. But to just, like, want to dismiss anyone who's read the books and dismiss anyone who doesn't like the show. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. And the, and I can't explain why people don't realize the show isn't making sense. I, <laughs> I mean, um, what was it? I think... Somebody mentioned this on Tumblr, I think, where they talk about how apparently the reviews for True Blood were very, very positive in its trademark of the last season, and then the show finished, and then all of a sudden, the same people who were praising it were all of a sudden not praising it anymore. Uh, and HBO kind of has a pattern of making this happen. Apparently, this is what I'm told. Like I said, like, 
I'm not really into uh, this whole... Sup- I would say Sopranos fits into that pattern, too. How do you- Sopranos actually was good. I don't know. I didn't watch the last bits of Sopranos. All the way through? No, I, I think I watched maybe, like, to the fourth or fifth season of Sopranos. Okay. It- there was a decline, okay. I would say. There was. Um, I don't want to get too tinfoily. Yeah. You know, especially HBO's more popular shows, because, like, Newsroom is always ripped. You know, they have shows that just don't take off and don't get acclaim. But HBO does have very positive press while shows are airing. That's yeah how it is. So take that to me what you will. I can't claim to know enough about this. Do you think do you think that we can look forward to a complete mysterious change of tone as soon as the show finishes? Or do you think people are actually duped by this? Because like if you read like you know the Westos.org forums, people seem to be duped by this. Well, Okay, I think two things are going to shift the tone. One is going to be the conclusion because there's no way any of this is going to wrap up in a coherent fashion. It can't. It can't. Mm-hmm. The the show is has a foundation of plot hole upon plot hole, and like that can't resolve itself in a cohesive manner. It just can't. So I think number one, the show finishing up is going to change the tone, and number two, a dance, with, uh, a dream of spring coming out is going to change the tone massively, or even the winds of winter, even. Even Winter Winter, but the conclusion of the book series, I think, is... I trust Martin. Okay. And his ability to give us dramatic satisfaction. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be people that are like, oh, the ending of the books is better anyway. But, um... Ending of the show, you Or mean? the show. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, do, I do think once it's off air, we're going to be seeing... Boy, could Martin just come out with an interview? Uh... No, he's a pro. He's not going to do that. Don't hold your breath. I know. He, I know. I mean, the one thing that. he said, like, he's been saying this for years long before Game of Thrones started happening, is he was, he's been critical of authors who sell their rights and then criticize the results. So I don't think he'll ever really, really do it. I think he got a taste of this medicine. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to say he's, he's glowing about the show at the moment. Yeah. I mean,. Yeah, he does seem to be, like, I don't, maybe, because we have our own George Martin headcanons, and, like, perhaps... No, you can, I'm sorry, you can tell in the tone of his blog posts. Yeah. No, but, like, everything, no, but, like, the, the tone of his blog post seems to be, like, please don't talk about the fucking show on my blog. So... Well, right, but that's not how it used to be, is what I'm yeah. saying. He used to hype it, and he used to, he used to seem excited, and... Yeah. Whatever. Maybe he's just getting frustrated with Winds of Winter taking yeah. so long, and... I don't, I'm worried about my confirmation bias every time he says something, so, you know. I try not to let my headcanons get away with me, but it never works. Okay, well, uh, moving on. <clears throat> uh, so, you mentioned how Edmure raped his wife because she was upset, and how the good guys in Westeros can be rapists and not know it because of patriarchy, but I was wondering if all sex between arranged people is rape. Didn't Ed rape Cat? Can anyone ever give consent in that context? Um, we've talked about this amongst ourselves quite a bit. Uh, and I think the conclusion we gave to is that's the right question. Yes. Yeah. Like <laughs> for sure. Um, and you know, what, what does it mean? Mm-hmm, what does consent, consent mean yeah. in, in a society that takes consent out of the equation? Yeah. Because like, sure. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sh- like, I'm almost a hundred percent sure based on what we know of their characters that if, you know, Kat said no, Ned would completely respect that. But if she had said no, and he didn't respect that, it wouldn't have made any difference. Like, it's Ned doing whatever the hell he wants. And, you know, he's a nice guy, and, you know, lucky her and good for him. But 
But also, patriarchy brain, she wouldn't have said no. Exactly, exactly. She wouldn't, like, so... Well, like, I, I mean, I think, on the wedding night. Yeah, I, I think um, the example with Rosalind is pretty clear-cut, because I don't, like, I don't know how any man could be in a situation where, like, you know, she's crying. <laughs> she's even ja- even Jamie says something to him about that. Like yeah. what you just thought that she was so overtake overcome with emotions at the sight of your floppy fish or whatever. Yeah. However, he puts it. Your rampant manhood, I think, was the term. Um, but like I don't, I don't want to. Fe- I don't want to sound like we're really. Yeah, Edmure kind of behaved in a socially acceptable way, and so I don't really want to pile onto him too much more that I than I want to pile onto the society. So, but um, but if Ned's wife had been crying like if cat had been sobbing i just don't see it going the same way yeah i i I know but that's just because he's ned and he's got kind of not not even a subversive streak but like yeah well edmure's also not the sharpest knife in the drawer i mean ned's ned's arc is all about how like he chose his internal over his external honor so yeah (laughs) like it's true yeah um but like it's a very good question, like what consent even means in when consent doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the right question, Anon. Um, I, yeah, like I think that tension's very useful to explore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I definitely like. I'm not. We're not like up here calling Ned a rapist or anything like that, but just. Mm-mm. I mean, just just the thing, like for for a woman, whether or not. Like, you know, she ends up in a marriage that's just like, you know, marital rape city or not. is just a matter of chance. Like, she has no control over it. That's what rape is. <laughs> right. Well, you know, even the whole society, mm. technically, by our standards, every single woman is sexually abused, right? Yeah. And this the highborn woman, because they're sexually groomed. Yeah. That's how how they are. So, you know, what's is there a value in calling it that? Yeah. You know, it... It can hang there. I think, I think A Song of Ice and Fire is a very challenging piece of literature in the right way, uh, probably because there's an exploration of these issues, especially in Feast Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's, I think literature can often raise these questions without reconciling them, and that's okay. Yeah, well, because a lot of these questions just don't have an answer. And like, when you're talking about, like, I don't think that's that's a stupid conversation to ever have when you're talking about like a relationship mm-hmm. between like a privileged and a marginalized person and how much like the just the inherent power dynamics and like how how they always have a role to play when you're talking about that relationship. So yeah, it's the right question and it doesn't necessarily have an answer. And I just like from a Watsonian perspective, even just like the way that people think about sex within marriage is just it's like what the woman wants, just consent, is just not something that's ever brought up. <laughs> just like, you know, Robert yeah. can talk about how he's mildly annoyed about how Cersei guards her cunt, but like, you know, that's just an annoyance to him. That's just, which is why John's like first, like John's cunnilingus was very, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the least realistic things that's ever happened in the books. <laughs> More than the language thing. Yeah, for more and for more than one reason too, like his yeah. age, his experience, patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, and like Egret was all shocked too, so it's not like she suggested the idea. Huh. Yeah, you have a point. Yeah, yeah, I know I do. I mean, I think in Dorne, it's pretty common, but yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> anyway, next question. Can you read? Can you? Yes. Fine. <laughs> 
as a Brit and shit, I am an irreverent snob, and I feel I found my spiritual home hunting the <laughs> snark amongst your blog and podcasts. Yay, thank you. Do you have any thoughts on Weisseroff's Razor? A working definition is that when trying to analyze Game of Thrones character development, shocking surprises, wholesale excisions, teleporter excursions, plotline expropriations, or random executions, the hypothesis with the greatest stupidity, offen- offensiveness, and simplicity should be selected. Yeah. That is saying, fucking... Yeah. That's brilliant. We've been saying something similar to it for a while, and it's just like, yes, it's always the stupidest explanation. That, <laughs> that's that's kind of what we call a honeypot, right? Like, yeah. it's always the dumbest, most illogical yeah. reason. Like, Stop can... honeypotting. That's what we've said. But I I like calling this Weisseroff's razor. I think we should add yeah. this. Yes. Officially. I agree. It is added. We're going to either do a season six update, or we're going to republish the uh, glossary and take out like Satanus and stuff because he's dead. But yeah, uh, yeah Weisseroff's razor. That's brilliant. <laughs> Truly brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Oh, this is a fun one. Okay, what is it? Are we moving on or sorry? We can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, congratulations, Anon. It is in the glossary now. Yay. Um, this is a fun one. I love these kind of things. Okay. Um, isn't it a bit weird that Arya's side, none of Cat's children, look anything like Ned? Why are you getting excited about this? <laughs> It's so weird because it's fun. Uh, something has al- something has always troubled me about Cat's POVs. It was like there was something huge she wasn't telling. Do you think that there's oh, a chance Lord. that Rob, Sansa, Bran, and Rickon could be somebody else's? We're told no. over and over again that the Stark about the Stark look. Yet those four are pure Tully. We know Cat has a vengeful sign. Maybe she was getting back at Ned for John and had one legitimate child, Arya, to deflect suspicion. Food for thought. I I have a feeling that you want to react to this, Kylie. <laughs> Unless Kat is a lot more fun than we gave her credit for. <laughs> she doesn't play the game <laughs> of lying to herself. Or or, oh or she's so good at it that she could like, you know, think postcoitally, oh I hope that I give him another son. <laughs> what is patriarchy for two hundred dollars, please? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, I don't want to make fun of this, because it's to be fair, Mm -hmm. Tully traits, as described, are blue eyes and, like, reddish hair. Yeah. And Stark traits are, like, dark brown hair and gray eyes, right? Yeah. And longer faces. Yeah, long faces. In our universe, in our universe, it's probable that Stark traits would be um, dominant to dominant and and recessive traits like are the be-all and end-all of genetics, like people seem to think it is. So... No, and in Westeroff, in Westeroff, oh my god, in... In Westeros, they definitely don't work the same way as they do in our world. Definitely, definitely not. There's magic involved. Yeah, and they just also, like, I think redheads are pretty prevalent in, yeah, West- in Westeros. Yeah, it's true. There's lots of them. Like, every other house seems to be, like, the red-haired house. It's weird. Even, like, the Tollins, you're like, um, okay. Yeah. Tollins and the Dontarians and, yeah. Yeah. Lots of them. The Red Winds. Yeah. Lots of them. So, like, don't just go by looks. Then Kat's vengeful side and getting back at Ned, like... No. I'm sorry, I don't see it. Patriarchy! My mind is short-circuiting, because the idea that she would have sex... Her revenge would be to have sex with someone else outside of marriage, when Kat is, like, patriarchy brain. Yeah. On steroids. Like, oh. And then she had to deflect suspicion, too. Yeah. I mean, this is, like, funny and, uh, it amuses me, but, like, oh, God. 
I'm sorry, dude. I'm not trying to be rude. It's just, yeah. no, <laughs> no, very no. I think part of the problem here, um, is that, like, and this Anon is by no means the only person to do this, is that this is often, like, um, the plot and the characters are often seen as, like, you know, puzzles to solve. When it's not about mm-hmm. who her, the father of her children is, it's about themes and shit. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's about, like, yeah, her patriarchy brain and, 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 and like, you know, how she feels that, like, you know, her children kind of legitimize her place as the Lady of Winterfell. And, like, um, you know, it's not to say she wasn't icy towards Ned as a result of this. We know she sure was. She does, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they had issues. There's a bit of a gap in between Sansa and Rob. And I don't think, I don't think Ned is the kind of guy who would ignore no. Yeah. I don't. So, Lucky you know, cat. take that to mean what you will. But, like, obviously where they are now and the way she thinks about, I hope I give him more sons and, like, no. Go read her Whispering Woods monologue. I've talked about it, like, 15 times, but just go read it and then tell me how likely you think it is that she's, you know, oh, gotta have that real child now to avert suspicion. Yeah. I, you know, and I guess to be fair, too, a major plotline revolved around Joffrey having blonde hair. Yeah. So. I can't believe it's not something. genetics. <laughs> I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> yeah, thanks for explaining my joke, Kylie. Okay, I thought it was fine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you want to be misunderstood, just like ambidextrous Arthur Dane. <laughs> that was awesome. Anyway. That was pretty awesome. You're awesome. Our next Adon is not too happy with us. <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure that stabbing <laughs> the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch is treason. I don't think there's an asterisk that states provided you're over the age of ten. It wasn't as honorable when John went after the mutineers that killed the old Baron. It wasn't as honorable when he killed the men that killed him, the Lord Commander. Okay, Sandy. That's fine. Um, that was the name of the person in Daria, right? Talk like that? Oh, I was imitating um, Eska and Desna from Project Voice Bento. <laughs> Dude, I think he's flooding with me. Anyway, uh, to start over. Um, yeah, I think Theodon is kind of missing the point of our criticism. Like, the point isn't that, like, you know, John acted dishonorably or illegally. The point is that this didn't have to be in the show at all. Seeing Ollie's corpse yeah, swinging. And certainly not the way that it was executed. But, like, you know, like, Ollie, Ollie is theirs. Like, they made up this plotline. They have no excuse for it. Yeah. And That's true. Like, why do they have a plotline where a 10-year-old boy, first of all, witnesses his family being brutally killed, uh, shoots somebody in battle, and then stabs his mentor in the gut, and then gets hanged? They didn't have to do any of that. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that, I'm sorry, like, even even if he acted legally and mm-hmm. honorably, like, it this, does this sit right with your conception of John? Yeah. Like, maybe with cardboard, sure, why not? I mean, like, you know, Rob was similarly conflicted when he killed Karstark, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was not a ten-year-old boy who yeah. was traumatized. Especially when Thorne kind of, like, up and was like, I was the one who did it. And he was stabbed by way more than four people, and he only hung four people. Well, you know, extras got really expensive in the in-between seasons. Right? New union rules or something. Um... <laughs> No, it, it, it's not. It's not that, like you know, he was being dishonorable from a Watsonian perspective. Not at all. It's that, of course, they killed another child and lingered on a shot of his bloated corpse. That's yeah. the issue. Anything else to add? No. Like, also, what what use is this? That that okay, it's treason, so he deserved to hang. Like, okay, mm-hmm. okay, good story. Thank you. 
really great. I enjoyed it. Like, what? What is the value in this? So, and and, and the fact that like John stayed Lord Commander just long enough to do this, you know, like it did make him seem more like into vengeance than justice. He could have let Ed handle this. <laughs> he he stayed Lord Commander specifically so he could hang these men, and then he quit. Or maybe, maybe like you know, it was supposed to be like a Ned thing where, he, like you know, the person who passes the sentence swings a sword or whatever. He didn't have to pass mm-hmm. the sentence either, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's true. All right, so you think one more or two more? Um, we could do two more, I guess. So we don't like predictions for a Song of Ice and Fire, but a s- predictions for Game of Thrones, I actually feel rather comfortable doing. <laughs> okay, because we have studied D and D's writing pretty pretty uh, thoroughly and mm-hmm. uh, intimately. So Anonymous said, what do you think D&D's endgame for the Lannisters will be? In the books, there seems to be a feeling that all the Lannisters' mistakes have piled up and they're about to face the consequences. I just can't see that having much dramatic weight on the show since well, the Lannisters are incredibly whitewashed, rarely do anything wrong, mm-hmm. and I suspect D&D see them as the heroes of the story. So yeah, At what do you point- think will happen to the Lannister family in Weisseroff? Love your blog. Um, you have a theory that you've expressed before about how you th- think that they're changing the Tyrell-related endgame? Yes. So, you know, despite all of Carol's whitewashing, I think we're supposed to see her as the bad guy. Which is confusing to me, yes. but It's confusing on many levels, but I really do believe D&D think that she's a villain. Like, they say that they've never seen her just as a villain, and they obviously... She's obviously Mm -hmm. leather-pantsed. It's not even subtle. But I, I think... There is still that, like, oh, come on, give that bitch hers mentality. Well, the marketing seems to be, like, if we're going with this theory that they more or less control the marketing conversation, um, yeah, like, Cersei is right? the unrelenting bitch, right? Right, yeah, and, like, that's just, like, kind of accepted as gospel. So, I, I like, obviously, 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 Tyrion is the golden boy, mm-hmm. and, you know. Well, I, he's not I even a... really a Lannister anymore, as far as the, co- the show is concerned, really. Right. He's but... off in his own category. Larry fucks up a lot. Mm-hmm. So Larry, he's going to die because Larry's stupid and he's a monster that kills people. And that's, they don't like him very much. Yeah. They've like, th- this is from their interviews. They just don't give a shit about Jamie. Um, I have a feeling he's going to die. Like probably not this season, but maybe next. Maybe that will be the shocking conclusion. I don't know why Larry and Carol are like the perfect OTP, but basically his death is probably just going to make Carol more sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol is going to get hers because she's a horrible bitch. But yeah, so I have a theory that the Tyrells are somehow going to be involved in the end game of the show and like propping up whoever the like good guy Victor is. Mm -hmm. So it's probably going to be like a Tyrell Targaryen alliance or something like that. Although Dan is breaking the wheel, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Um, um, Tyrion or uh, Saint Tyrion did imply something like that when in the that wonderfully yes. scintillating break the wheel conversation, right? Yes. Where he said that the Tyrells are her only hope, or something like that. Yeah, he basically said the Tyrells are your only hope, and D and D wouldn't write something like that unless they were like, oh, "Let's make the Tyrells her only hope." Uh, and the, you know, so I have the theory that the Tyrells are going to end up victorious because we like the Tyrells, right? For some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anyone likes them on the show, but okay, we like them. Uh, and I'm sure, like, Marjorie's going to be, like, up there with her poses, unless they decide to kill her for shock. I don't, like, you know, they could, that's the thing about this show. It's, it's, it's being written by, like, an eight-year-old with, you know, ADHD, 
So mm-hmm. I, I don't know what's going to happen. They could just find it more shocking, but I have a, a kind of suspicion that the Terrells are going to end up in a very good position by the end of this. Not necessarily completely. Well, they have to be rewarded for their feminism, right? Exactly, right? And, and you know, not necessarily completely, like, going to be the opposite of what the books give us, but probably. But I don't think, however the show wraps up, is going to be nearly as neat. And I do see them maybe rewarding the Tyrells over the other houses. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the books, I think it's going to be a much more complicated resolution. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. And sometimes, like, my Dornish headcanons get the better of me, and I'm like... Tordish independence, yo! <laughs> yeah, the Tyrells are gonna, like, take their spot in the show or something, but whatever. Yeah. Tordish independence. That's that's my theory. I don't know. Do you disagree? Uh, about the Tyrells or about Tordish independence? About, uh, the Lannisters' fate in the Tyrells, I guess. Um, yeah, it seems reasonable to me. Um, I'm not, like, because there, there's implied to be not really a Stark ascendancy, but, like, a Stark kind of survival, I suppose. And... I'm not sure how that will play into the Lannisters either. But yeah, like I do kind of feel like the Lannisters have to go down in the show. Yeah. In the books too, obviously. But um yeah. <laughs> That's the thing like um Lord Bron Stokeworth on Tumblr uh, I think he coined the phrase uh or they rather, uh they coined the phrase reverse honeypotting, where like they have all these stories that they don't realize they're telling. Right? And, yes. You know, the Ballad of Carol is definitely one of them. Yeah, they don't realize that they're telling a very feminist story about, <laughs> you know, a woman pushed up against the, the rails. You know, she's got no recourse. She's seeing all these abuses in her house and uh, she's, she's sort of acting with the only recourse she has. And, you know, it's, it's this kind of great resistance narrative in a way. Yeah, his Dorso Sansa is another, but it's probably still my favorite example of that. His Dorso Sansa is the clearest example of a reverse honeypot. And his yeah. Sansa Clash of Kings resistance narrative, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't think they even real. I don't think it even occurs to them that Cersei's a good guy now. Yeah. Good guy Carol. <laughs> good guy Carol. Accidentally a great negotiator. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. I think it does. It sounded like an answer this time. Yay! We're going to pop the biggest bottles when D&D start respecting women. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, we'll just be the uh, what I love about that partic- Pepe. Yeah, what I love about that particular ask is like the depth of like engagement with multiple fandoms that inquires to truly understand it. But, okay. Uh, oh my god, yeah, it's great. Well, I... I got I got one that was like we pop in the biggest bottles of champagne when Aegon and uh, Ariane get married. <laughs> shut up. I mean, I realize that's a support of our position, but shut up. Don't even mention it. I'm like 99% sure Harkin said that. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so last one, I guess, actually, speaking of Ariane. Uh-huh. Um, so we're speaking of Ariane. Do you want me to read it? I do. Your voice is much nicer. Yeah, but I always stumble over reading. Uh, I know, and it's cute. <laughs> One thing I really like about the new Ariane chapter, Ariane 2, I assume, um, was it showing she has military knowledge. I always assumed she would have, but it's nice to see her thinking about how you'd go about taking Storm's End and such. 
it's highly unlikely other women north of Dorne would know such things unless they've had an upbringing like Brienne's, and that's very rare, or educating themselves, which wouldn't be easy at all. Uh, yeah, we talked about this a little bit in our Dornish Headcanon Hour, I think, about how uh, women in Dorne would have to have at least a rudimentary military education, like yes, uh, strategy, if not tactics. Um, yeah, like, there is still sexism in Dorne, like, mm-hmm. sort of gender roles, specifically. Yeah. So, like, I don't think, you know, it's, it's abnormal. No, the it, it's, it's, un- it's more like, uh, like, there's definitely gender roles, but they don't think that ruling is one of those gender role things. <laughs> right. So, because, <laughs> yeah. because women inherit in Dorne, mm-hmm. they need to be taught the military, like, military pragmatism as well as history and stuff. Yeah, it's because just, just if, if they're going to be in a position where they have final say over these, these things, it's probably helpful if they're not complete ignorant about it yeah exactly yeah. like you know um deloine illyrian needs to like know what it means when she's giving troops yeah and needs to understand that and you know the tullans too like we hear the lady tallon talk about in in Arian one about yeah. like you know what what does this mean with the army like you hear these conversations that, that yeah. need to be happening um yeah, I mean, granted, there's the whole thing where Arianne's like, we have 50,000 spears, and Doran's like, no, we don't. Yeah. But at the same time, Quentin also said that to Danny, and you don't get the impression that Quentin's a very good liar, so... Yeah. I think Doran just might not be very good at <laughs> instructing, teaching people about this. Yeah. Um. I mean, like... <sighs> Yeah, I'm not sure how you can keep that from your own bannerman, but like I can see Doran thinking that he should. So, um Yeah, like the like so obviously there's gaps in Ariane's knowledge for mm-hmm. sure. And she's not like martially trained. Yeah. So there's certain things that she's not gonna understand to the same extent that like, you know, our Geralt Dane would understand. Yeah, but yeah, I do think this chapter is, is really good at like kind of showing like her very her very, I mean, Princess in the Tower did the same thing, and even the Queen. Maker, yes, but thank just, you. I was going to say that. Yeah, her, her very, like the way that she has a very strong understanding of politics, like from, like from the perspective of like individual players as people, and how she always kind of thinks through the implications of certain, like you know, she thinks of possibilities and then thinks through all the implications of those possibilities. And she's always Is she very good similar at that. to her dad or something. Yeah, maybe. And, and yeah, this was um, Julia has the right of it, where it was established in Princess mm-hmm. in the Tower that she does this when she's thinking through who do I send this stupid letter to that I yeah. manipulated Cedra into letting me mail. <laughs> that was epic. <laughs> um, but go read the three paragraphs where she's like listing the strengths and weaknesses of the House of Dorne. She's strategic. She is yeah. a strategic, strategic person, and she does yeah, like this knowledge is just so casual to her. And, and, and even an even in part. the in Ariane too, it was it was definitely more political knowledge than military knowledge. Where she's thinking of like you know what are the implications if you know they lose the battle and I'm like stuck with my head in the with my hand in the chamber pot. Like what are the implications of like uh, if they're alienating all of the stormlords with their behavior? Uh, like what are the implications of this and that and that and just thinking through everything and just yeah so even even in Ariane too, I think her knowledge is definitely more political than military, but yeah, she does oh, for obviously sure. for obviously sure. have some military knowledge well, she also kind of defers to like the dudes who know what they're talking about if she yeah. needs to, like she will ask Damon, I'll stop, but yeah, <laughs> sorry, think about Damien, <laughs> yeah, no, it's great, it's refreshing i love I love Ariane's point of view, and it's just mm-hmm. so unique in the way that you know. Martin really does a great job showing that sort of values dissonance with the rest of the the female POVs and 
Yeah. Values, dif- difference in values, specifically yeah. difference in. I mean, it's it's not like Cat doesn't do the same thing a lot of the time. So like, she does, but it's to a different mean, mm-hmm. different end. And yeah, Cat yeah, actually does have a fair amount of political knowledge. Yeah, and even like military knowledge. I guess you have to in this kind of society, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, we certainly had Kevin that endured that education is especially important to women. Yeah, and to everyone, just you know, yeah. they're going to rule. Yeah, so they need to know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Kat is actually pretty on point with most of yeah. this. I know, it just kills me how she never she never even like thinks that like maybe she would be better at ruling Laverdon than her adorably befuddled younger brother. But no, she never does. Oh my god, she would have been so much better at ruling Riveron. Mm-hmm. She's like meant for it, basically, and yeah. Edmure's like, Oh I got a mill. <laughs> Edmure <laughs> Just like grow up, dude. That's gonna be contentious. People love Edmir in the fandom. I don't like. I, I like him. I like him fine, mm. and he cares about like the you know small folk a bit. Yeah, that's sweet of him. Um, one quick, quick, quick question that actually piggybacks off of Dornish things, though, because this is like we get asked this all the time, and it's really annoying. Sorry, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> we love it. Thank you, Renan. Um, I don't know if you've answered this before, but how exactly does the Martell name get passed uh, down generation since sorry. females can't be heirs? And I guess this applies to all houses in Dorne. Would Ariane's future children just take her name instead of her husband's? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Problem solved. No, like I really, I, uh, I never realized before how deeply ingrained patrilineal naming conventions seem to be in our own society because people just can't seem to wrap their heads around this. And like it's not we get this ask all the time. Yes, I mean, okay. So basic: when your children are your heirs, of course they get your name. And whether you're the mother or the father in the situation isn't nearly as important as that. Maybe it gets complicated when you have two people and neither of them are heirs, and then like there's some kind of like seniority thing going on, which is like probably one of those things that people in this situation are like. It's so natural to them, they don't even have to think about it. But when you try to explain it, it's just like, oh, why would, like, you know, the Tolans come before the Ullers or something? And, like, you know, there's... Right, 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 right. Yeah. But, like, to them, it would be perfectly natural. Oh, of course, like, the child would be an Uller. Like, why would you even ask that? So, right, but... But, but to us, like, yeah. like, Ryan Illyrian having the last name Illyrian is not any more remarkable than his kids having the last name Illyrian. Because mm-hmm. they're they are all in the line of House Illyrian. That's the point. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter that he came from Deloine. <laughs> yeah. That, like, yeah, so, yeah, the children, the children automatically getting the name of the father is just not as obvious as people seem to think. I don't know. And, like, it's not that it never happens north of the mountains either, but it seems to be, like, a very particular, like, case that is, is worthy of comment. Like, uh, yeah. Eris, Eris got his name for his, Eris Elkhart got his name from his mother. So. Yes. And that is commented yeah. upon. Yeah. But, like, it's all about, like, this. it's more about the station than about the gender. Mm-hmm. Even, even, yeah, yeah. Even North of the Mountains, I think, is what that was going on there with, um... Yeah. With the Oakarts, for sure. But, yeah, like, I just... Is it that complicated? Is it? Yeah, this is this is another uh, solution without a problem. That just... Yeah, like, oh, just... We do get asked it a lot, but it's just... Mm-hmm. It's so strange, and especially, like, you know... Yeah, because uh, Prince Philip, the the group of the Duke of Edinburgh, he uh, apparently he pitched a fit when he found out that his children wouldn't have his last name. So, <laughs> and this was like in 1950. So, ooh, I have the best ass to close this out on. Yeah, 
If you had to pick either Benioff or Weiss to adapt a Song of Ice and Fire, which one would you choose? I can answer this in a heartbeat, but I want to hear what you say. Weiss. <laughs> yes, thank you. Benioff seems to be, like, actually not a good person. And he is the dri- I think he is the driver behind a lot of this. I mean, I, do, I don't feel comfortable saying that about somebody I don't know. Not just from his interviews and stuff like that, but from all his previous work. I... Yeah, I'd much rather have not him. Like, more not Benioff than Weiss, you know? Weiss gave an interview where he said he's scared for his life around Benioff. <laughs> like, I think we need to think about that. Um, the, the thing, too... But with- he's married to Amanda Pete, and she seems cool, and she said some things about anti-vaxxers that made me happy. So, I don't know. He is, like... <laughs> From the impression I get from interviews, you're right. It's not mm-hmm. fair to say this because I don't know this. Is that you know Benioff? Benioff, first of all, had more credentials than Weiss going into this, mm-hmm. so he's the name, I guess. And my impression was that he kind of talks about the show and the books with the sort of derision, like he's so much beneath him, and like. Mm-hmm. Of course, they should just accept it. And meanwhile, Weiss talks about it kind of. It's like the best thing they've ever. In- created since sliced bread and he's just like so proud of it and he wants to like put his little drawings up on the refrigerator like that's that's just kind of the impression you get yeah um but another kind of bizarre thing is that weiss like this is such a weird point for me to make because you know i'm not a shipper and i don't care but anytime the issue of sansan has come up at all weiss seems to like be able to talk to it okay and benioff doesn't so you kind of get the impression that weiss might have a very a different interpretation of the books, but I, I think it's very difficult to see how they behave in interviews and joint interviews and come away with the impression that Benioff isn't in charge. Is like, yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah, so one hundred percent, I would rather Weiss. It can't get worse than it is. <sighs> don't well, say that. Don't tempt fate like that. <laughs> but like I'm saying, Benioff left to his own devices, I don't think would look very different. I think Weiss okay. left to his own devices might. I think okay. it might. There's at least a chance that he, like, I don't know, would hire someone who was a woman, maybe, or something. <laughs> or he knew something about rape. <laughs> or, like, yeah. Or, you know, truthfully. If it makes you feel better, like, more comfortable, you can hire a man who knows something about rape and rape survivors, you know? <laughs> yeah, Just like, that's fine. Somebody. Someone. <laughs> but I also think Weiss is maybe, like, a little less willing to put in these risks so i think for that reason alone it would be a closer adaptation okay but you know i don't you know i obviously we don't know the conversations going on behind yeah. closed doors it's just for all of our our funny posts about the writer's room <laughs> we should do more of those they're refusing those are great i love them <laughs> i think yeah I'm i'm a huge fan of them i think my favorite one i still did was like um was it with uh, Falaria and Doran, I think? <laughs> Whatever. I'll have to dig it up. But yeah, uh, you know, we, we truly don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but I do think I do think Weiss, there's a chance it wouldn't look like this. Yeah. How are you thinking Winds of Winter will end? Like the big plot points. Yeah, we're into answering questions like that, for sure. Anyway, I think that about does it for mm-hmm. our show. Yeah, about does it, as we're like over two hours. Uh, so yeah, we enjoy these open inbox hours. We basically just did this because, uh, we need some time to plan out our brand and northern mysticism 
yeah, episode. We, we both have a lot of rereading to do, I think, for that, because that's not really something that we kind of engage in. No, naturally. we both just keep writing fanfic instead of rereading, so. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I'm not going to apologize for it. No, you shouldn't, because, because my, your new story my, is looking great. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, it's very possible that we're going to be doing another one of these. Yeah, and maybe we should, we should just put it in the poll and see how it goes. Yeah, just like just like a common thing. Other than that, you know, we have a, we're going to have an upcoming poll for what we should focus on. And believe it or not, uh, Game of Thrones is almost over too. Oh my so god, what the fuck! I don't know if we're if we ever going to do a retrospective podcast like we did. I don't think it's going to be quite to the same level of engagement. But I did enjoy recording those. those yeah, were those are really. <laughs> it was fun being that salty. There's something cathartic about it. There is something well because we're mean and we're mean spirited and self satisfying. So we're definitely self satisfied. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, you know, definitely send any responses to us. Let us know if this grab bag format worked for you. If not, I don't know. Yeah. We won't do it, I we guess. We should do more research less next time. Yeah. And I'm sorry, we tried to have a good Dorn balance, but we legitimately get a lot of questions mm-hmm. about it. So yeah. we tr- we tried to hone it in, uh, rein it in. Hone it in. What the fuck? And yeah, okay. That's, that's about it. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Oh man, this is so going to be the Easter egg. Me singing badly in Spanish? Yes. Why are you singing this? <laughs> and it's, um, when, I can't leave you alone for two minutes, can I? No, when, when I was like, uh, like 19, I went to Spain for the summer. And that was one of the songs that like they taught us in language class and we like, you know, had mm. to like actually try to understand what the fuck they were saying. It was about it was about migrants swimming trying to swim the Strait of Gibraltar and drowning. Oh my god. Yeah. What? How was the trip otherwise? The trip to Spain? Yeah. Uh it was a good trip. Yeah. You you got laid, didn't you? Oh I got laid. (laughs) I got so (laughs) laid. Oh (laughs) And it was three months, so Oh my god. Uh, this is why I study abroad. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, this is this is pre-child. Guy named Kanto. No, no, it wasn't even Guy named Kanto. It was it was more like Suki's trip to the Fire Nation. Oh my god. An erotic travel. <laughs> <laughs>